1: This is Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello, and welcome to Oral Delights Show 148. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Guess where I am when you listen to this? I am sunning my butt on a camping holiday. So I've just recorded show 147 yesterday. I'm now doing 148, and the mind's going a little bit mad and puzzled here. I'll give you a little heads up what's coming in today's show. First off, we have Starship Sofa interrogations. Those 15 questions are put to Ursula Kayla Guin, no less. We've got some flash fiction. Coming up by Erica Nauni. Fact article. We have a great interview with Lucius Shepard to do with his main fiction story. Both Lucius and I wanted really a ten minute story or ten minute sorry interview with Lucius, and we did that. And then it's the after the interview chat, which is just exactly what you know. I mean, I just knew how this guy was and how he worked or how his mind ticked, and then. To get kind of get let in and, and chat with him on a kind of one to one basis, not like an interview basis, was just an amazing thing and I just loved it. So, and I asked Lucius if I could, you know, play the whole thing and he was more than keen. So, please have a listen to this interview. It's just excellent. Then we have the main fiction, which is by Lucius Shepard, which is Carlos Manson Lives, which is narrated by the fantastic Christy Yant, an amazing narration. Then we begin our serial. We have a serial, The Barons, Part 1, by F. Paul Wilson. And look out for that three part serial, narrated by Amy H. Sturgis. So that is Oral Delights, Show 148. I hope you will stick around and enjoy the show. <laughs> So first up we have Starship Sova's Interrogations, this is where I put the 15 questions to, none other than Ursula K. Le Guin. Ursula K. Le Guin, are you a science fiction writer? Uh,
0: among other things,
1: yes. Tell me about your childhood.
0: Uh, it was unusually happy, I
1: think. How did you get started in the science fiction genre?
0: By submitting a story to a science fiction magazine and getting it accepted.
1: Which single science fiction writer most influenced your own style? Maybe Cordwainer Smith. Which book by another author do you wish you had written?
0: War and Peace.
1: What would be the one question you would ask a science fiction writer?
0: Let me think about that one. Uh, I think I—I I might ask where—where uh, where do you think science
1: fiction is going now? For what reason do you write science fiction in preference to other classes of literature?
0: Well, I don't, you see, because I—I I write other kinds of literature too. So I just write whatever I feel like at the moment.
1: What one aspect of science fiction writing is the most difficult?
0: Getting getting the information that has to be there into the story without making it into an expository lump.
1: Does it get any easier?
0: Uh yeah. Uh-huh. it does.
1: Describe your daily working day.
0: <laughs> well uh if I have something to write, then I go up after
1: breakfast and uh, work for the morning. What's the strangest thing you've ever done while researching? Hmm. I don't think I've done anything strange while researching. Do you think science fiction as a genre is different from other genres? Well,
0: it is, it is more likely to to have some genuine relationship, intellectual or moral or emotional, with science. It is not as human-centered as most genres of literature. It includes a lot besides human beings
1: in its story. What do you consider the chief value of science fiction?
0: offering alternative uh, ways of doing things and glimpses of how the world need not be exactly the way it is.
1: Has science fiction ever
0: disappointed you? Oh, many times.
1: Is there still new ground to be covered in science fiction literature? I'm sure there is. Ursula K. Le Guin, thank you very much. Thank you. Next up is a little bit of flash fiction by Erica Naonai. Now I probably <laughs> I totally hashed that. Erica, sorry about that. Give a little heads up about Erica. Writes by day about topics related to the internet and computer software. She also writes fiction which has appeared on On the Premise, Story Glossia, Everyday Fiction and Flash Quake. While the writing habit is the only one that sticks consistently, she regularly has brief and passionate obsessions. Recently, these have included chess, hacker culture, and pulp SF. She's the sort of person who goes to Vegas, doesn't gamble, and visits the Atomic Testing Museum instead. She's often sleep deprived. And I'll put a link on to her blog as well so you can pop over there and say hello to Erica. Erica, thank you so much for this. It is narrated by the one and only Matthew Sanborn Smith over there at the Beware the hairy mango. Give that lad a big cuddle from me. Will anyone that sees him, just give him a big hug. <laughs> get, get his cheeks and just pull him close and go <laughs> Matthew can star. So. Starship Sova and her oral delights is very. I nearly got that wrong as well, didn't I? Starship,
2: I'll try that again. Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present "Toxicity" by Erica Naone, read by Matthew Sanborn Smith. Elsie Jennings wriggled in the hallway, adjusting her suit, then knocked on the door. Just open it, he shouted from inside. She let herself in. Vannevar Stone lay crammed on a tattered loveseat, his long legs braced against the arm. His skin, the yellow-green and mottled brown of an undernourished plant, glowed faintly in the dim electric light. Antique books and magazines were scattered across the floor like rubbish in the street. "'If this is a bad time,' she began. "'Nonsense. You're from the EPA, correct?' "'From NASA, Environmental Division.' "'You're just in time to join me for a cigarette. Have a seat,' he gestured toward a spindly chair." Elsie set down her briefcase and sat, staring at the African violet on the end table beside her. "'Thought those were extinct,' she said. He coughed out a laugh. "'That's thanks to my famous lawsuit, Remuneration from Green Jean Incorporated. It's lovely.' He hauled himself into a sitting position and retrieved a wooden case from under the love seat. "'I like to roll my own cigarettes. Would you like one?' Elsie cleared her throat. "'Mr. Stone, can we talk business?' "'Oh, yes,' he said witheringly. "'You want me to become an astronaut?' "'Of sorts.' She opened the briefcase and retrieved the images her assistant had designed. I want to talk to you about our Martian forestation project. These trees may seem strange. Any tree would seem strange today, Miss Jennings. But they're a real possibility on Mars. Her mind reached for the words she had prepared. When your parents designed you to be capable of photosynthesis, they were trying to create a sustainable life for mankind. While their dream of saving the Earth unfortunately cannot be realized, they did give you the chance to build a new world on Mars and to save humanity in the process. She stopped, uncomfortable. He stared at her. Miss Jennings, if you don't join me for a cigarette, I'm not going to be able to stand your drivel. Think of it as the cost of admission to my life. He held it out to her and waited. After several moments of staring into his green bloodshot eyes, she accepted. He lit it for her, then lit one for himself. She imagined she could see the chloroplasts dying in his skin. His face turned the toxic shade of Everglades water. Elsie ventured a drag and broke into a coughing fit. I can't talk to someone who doesn't understand how it feels to breathe in this world, he said loudly, ignoring her coughs. As a child, I had constant asthma attacks. The doctors in the emergency room didn't know what to do with me, and so my mother would call Green Jean's tech support line. She would wait on hold while I gasped for air. That was how I learned no one cared what happened to me. Your mother did. You don't have experimental engineering done to your child if you plan to care about it. She accepted the possibility I would die at any moment. Take another puff, will you? I want you to hear me out, Elsie said, after suffering through another bottle coughing. I've got the research here for you. I think on Mars you would enjoy the best health of your life. It would be a completely engineered environment, pristine and unpolluted. And the other people there... Would all be greenies, freaks like me. The other people would all be engineered for environmental sustainability like you. You're the only people capable of living on the limited supplies the government could send to establish a colony. And what you're not saying is that you need me to agree because I'm a leader in the community. You would have a chance to... I didn't live to 50 by letting my heart bleed all over the floor. Do you know just last week I was attacked in the street? They tried to set me on fire to see if I would burn like a tree. An emerald vein grew visible on his forehead. Elsie looked out the window, at the air shimmering with oil. She smoked and waited. "'You really believe what you're saying, don't you?' he said. "'You think you can help mankind by convincing me to go. Tell me how you can believe that.' She brushed a lock of brown hair out of her eyes. His tone made her feel young. "'I know you'll probably die there,' she said quietly. "'I'm not trying to hide that from you, but you'll have a chance, "'and it's the only way we can get the funding to even try to build an off-world colony.' The government likes the idea of getting rid of us. He put out a cigarette, but she kept hers in her hand. They do, but the world is dying, and you're dying. What can it hurt to try to make a new life? Life hurts, he said. Tell me something. Your parents modify you at all? The basic package. Disease resistant. Lowered tendency to addiction. Nothing extreme. No cosmetics? You're a nice-looking woman. I'm afraid that's natural. Lucky. Sensible parents. Out to help you, not to prove a point. Look, is there some paperwork you want me to sign? Elsie opened the briefcase again. He took the paper she handed him, signing his name with a flourish. "'You did a good job talking to me,' Vannevar Stone said. There was a little choke in his tone. She cocked her head at him, face calm. "'Did they tell you,' he said after a minute, "'that I've poisoned every one they sent?' "'Of course,' Elsie said, taking a final puff. "'But I'm already dying of tumors caused by toxic air. "'I'd have been lucky to live long enough to see your launch. "'How long have I got now?' "'Minutes,' he said.' Maybe you can spend them telling me what you plan to do with your new world.
1: There you go. Erica, Matt, thank you so much. Links on again to them sites. If you want to go and see Matt, say hello or Erica. Don't we get that? So next up is an interview with Lucius Shepard. And like I said in the introduction, this is, it probably stretches for about 48 minutes, something like that. And I just wanted really when I phoned up Lucius, you know, it was a last minute thing as well. I'm trying lately to, you know, if I, there's a story there and I can link like a little interview with that particular story of the author, I'll do that, you know, time permitting. And I knew from the last time I spoke to Lucius, you know, we did that 15 questions, you know, set questions you know, and Lucia says it's a, it's a difficult thing, it's not his kind of bag of fish, so to speak. And, you know, and I says, I haven't got any questions wrote down, you know, and I, I normally never do, to be quite honest, when I'm, when I'm interviewing people, it's just, whatever comes to mind, you know, it bounces off them ideas. So, you know, we kicked off the interview, I'm just giving you a little heads up here, I kicked off the interview, and, you know, and the interview on, on certain topics of the story and how he writes lasted about 10 minutes, and then... Lucius turned around and says well you know what's happening with you Tony and then from there that's when it just was just a a joy to listen to you know the guy's done all sorts of crazy wacky stuff in his time and he opened up a little bit in this interview and I just thought it was an excellent I could have just listened all night so this is the interview and then it'll be followed by Lucius's story Carlos Manson Lives. So I'm joined by the author of Carlos Manson Lives, Lucius Shepard. Lucius, nice of you to come on board. Thanks, hi. Lucius, now I'm really quite pleased, or not pleased with this story, chuffed that I've got this story. Tell us a little bit about it, if you can remember, because it was 2003, I think, when it came out.
3: Well, it's just a little story I wrote um, from a woman's point of view, from a... From a rock and roll singer's point of view, you know, I've known a lot of women in rock and roll and like, uh, so she was a kind of composite of the worst women I knew. And, uh, you know, she was just, uh, you know, she was a druggie and like uh, she had this weird encounter, which is the kind of thing that happens in rock and roll all the time. Strange sort of encounters, but sometimes they're sinister and sometimes they're just stupid. But, you know, yeah, that's about what it was, you know. But it was the first, I wrote a series of stories after that about the same character in different stages of her life.
1: I was just looking on, I think it's the internet science fiction database there, and there is like a number of stories in 2003. Is that when they all kind of came around, this particular batch of stories?
3: Um, when I wrote them? Those yes. particular series? Um, no, I mean, I, I've written them, you know, intermittently over the years, you know. I mean, she's just a character I like. You know, I, I like usually unsympathetic, unpleasant characters.
1: <laughs> Why is that?
3: I think they're more interesting. You know, I mean, I think if you act and ask an actor whether you'd rather play a good guy or a villain, I think he'll go villain ninety percent of the time. I mean, you know, like uh, villains are usually usually have more they have more easy ways to get into the character. You know, for a writer, you know, than uh, than than a good guy does. You know, or, or a good woman. You know, it's like. Uh, they're, um, they just, like, seem to seem, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's not true. I mean, maybe it's just me, you <laughs> know, like, uh, you know, but anyway, well, for me, they're, they're much easier to, to relate to, you know.
1: A bit more, would, even for me, mind you, as well, a bit more exciting, do you know what I mean? Yep. Just a, do you prefer the short story to the novel? Because I was looking at you, again, on that site, didn't there science fiction database and you've got a, a fair number of short stories are them do them keep you going when you're when you're in between working on novels or do you prefer well, you know I,
3: you know basically basically i mean you know i'm haven't been much of a novelist but uh that may change in the next few years but like uh i mean basically i just i just have so many ideas that you know that, that develop out to usually only novella length you know and uh they, they don't seem to warrant expansion, and, uh, so I just leave them as the novellas and don't try and expand them, but, I, I mean, it's a natural, it's a natural length for a writer, I think, a novella, it's just, uh, it's good enough to, it's long enough to, uh, to where you can, uh, interject enough characterization plot, you know, to, to make things run, and, like, you know, you usually get a pretty good deep story out of it, but, uh. I just, I'm just not, you know, I'm just sort of, I like, I like novellas and long novelettes more than, more than any, more than writing novels. I mean, I mean, you know, what, I mean, novels, you know, are usually, you know, most novels I read could be compressed, you know, I feel. And like, uh, I mean, they're usually extended and drawn out things. And I don't know, I just lose interest in a lot of them, you know, so.
1: I I was just going to ask that. Are you a bit of a severe critic with other You know, when you're reading it, you're thinking, oh, you're waffling here.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I sort of can see, you know, where writers, you know, or some writers anyway, uh, you know, they start trying to poof things out, you know. (laughs) know, And like, uh, you know, it's like, uh, you know, I I just, you know, I, I don't do that. I try and get it done. I mean, most a lot of people over here say I, I write long, but you know, I mean, I try to write more. My 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 definition of it is, I write more precisely. But I don't. I mean, I tell I tell simple stories, and I, I just I think most novels are really basically simple stories that are really, uh, you know, overcomplicated and, and you know like puffed up and. You know, I mean, you could tell them in less words, you know. Like, but you know, again, that's just me. I I don't know if that's true or not. You know, I just it's just a feeling I have. I don't I don't like to read many novels. I don't finish many novels, and uh, you know, I finish a lot of short stories and novellas. So,
1: what? Um, just out of curiosity, what are you reading now?
3: I'm not really not reading too much right now because I'm in, I'm in a really you know sort of pressured deadline work mode, you know, and like. Uh, <laughs> but I just read Karen Warren's short story collection because I wrote the intro to it, and that was very good. Dead Sea Fruit, it's called. And like I, uh, um, I just read a book called The Ask by uh, Stephen Lipschite, You know, I think his name is. It's really good. It's like kind of a odd, you know, novel about a, a man who's like uh, he's sort of. That's bad, at, that's bad attitude toward the United States, which
1: I kind of liked. You know, so. you, you know when you've got these deadlines on and things like that, do you not read, because you don't want to be kind of influenced, by, not influenced, maybe, you know, s- somehow the, their words kind of seep into your words, or is it just purely time thing you need to kind of concentrate on getting yours? Well,
3: right in- now it's a time thing. It's a time thing right now. I mean, you know, I, I don't mind reading and I love to steal from other writers I mean you know it's like you know one of my favorite things but like uh, but you know the um, right now it's just a matter of like if you're working a 12 hour day writing you don't want to just get, sit back and start a book you know you, you just assume maybe watch a movie or something like that you know or you know go out and take a walk or
1: and you don't want, you you know, don't want some uh, fool from the other side of the pond fool right in the middle of it
3: well, no, that's fine, you know, but I mean, you know, it's just like, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of other things rather I'd rather do right now, especially when I'm putting in such long hours, you know, like, you know, can you, than than read.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about what you're, you're working on now or?
3: Well, what I'm working on at the moment is a, a novella, you know, which is a, a drag, a dragon grill novella. It will be the final one in, in this series of stories I wrote about this, uh, Immense 7,000 foot dragon, you know, who just doesn't do anything. He moves, he doesn't move, he's paralyzed, you know, and like, uh, but he sort of dominates the landscape because people think he's a god, you know, sort of, you know, and like he never, never says he is, and certainly never can, never can move or give any evidence that he is, but, uh, When I first started writing the stories in the uh, 1980s, I sort of was thinking about the Reagan administration. You know, you know that was my model for the dragon. You know, uh, you know. But anyway, like uh, you know, so I'm writing one of those. But I've I've also working on a novel, and uh, that's like uh, called the End of Life as We Know It, which is kind of a a, kind of a genre novel, but it's sort of basically it's a slip, slip slipstream novel more or less. You know. Around the border, there
1: have you have you got a deal with that one? That this novel coming out? Have you? He's got a publisher or? Yeah, oh, that's
3: nice. But I mean, you know, it's like uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I can place pretty much what I write right now. I mean, you know, like, uh, but uh, you know, I like to write the novels before, but I have a couple of editors who. Who's who've expressed interest, and in, you know another another publisher has just now come through and expressed interest. So I'm not too worried about placing it. You know, I don't have I don't have a solid. You know, I didn't I, I like I don't like writing on spec because you know I just I don't know wh- how long it's going to take me to finish this book, and I don't want anybody telling me how long it how long it'll take me. So you know.
1: Uh, I'm just, I'm just interested. Yeah, are you like a, a plotter with your work? You know, like, a careful plotter, get it all planned out first, or no, and no just no. sit down and ah, oh, oh, there's a f- lords to be quite honest. See, oh, I just start writing and I see where it ends. Yeah, that's
3: pretty much it. I mean, you know, I mean, I sometimes, you know, like. Um I mean, I sort of have an idea where it's going, you know, like, I mean, but I never, I mean, I don't sit down there and, you know, put scene one, scene two, scene three, you know, down, you know, I just, you know, after, I mean, I, I, I might have an idea of the middle and, I mean, of the beginning and and the end, but, you know, I, I certainly don't know anything about the middle, you know, and like, uh, so that's, and usually by the time I've written the middle, the ending's changed anyway, so, you know.
1: So, just really ending then, Lucius. How how long you got more left to write today? How many more hours are you going to give yourself?
3: <laughs> I'm going to take a break after we get off the phone, eat lunch, and, uh, you know, probably get back to it about 2, 2.30, and, like, uh, 2.30 maybe, and, like, uh, they'll probably go to 7 or 8 o'clock. You know, I've been working since 6. Oh. So, you know, it's like... Uh, but I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm working on two things now. I'm working, I'm working on... The, The uh, novella and the novel, both. You know, yeah. I mean, you get stale if you keep if you work on one thing for that long. So I switch off. You know. So you know, it's.
1: I I was gonna say it's it's funny because when I emailed you this like today for my like say morning time and you really emailed back pretty much soon straight away. I was thinking you're up pretty early. So are you you up six o'clock in the morning writing?
3: Yeah, well, I actually last that was. uh, I got up and to go to the bathroom, but you know, like <laughs> the, uh, you know, like, uh, the, uh, you know I, yeah, I was up at six o'clock and pretty much working by six twenty, you know, like and. uh yeah, I, I you know, I like to start working before I wake up so I won't know how I'm losing a day, you know, to work, you know, like you know, I mean if I'm if I don't think about what a nice day it is outside and anything like that, you know, then I'm okay, you know. But if I start thinking about, you know, gee, it looks like, you know
1: I was gonna just say that. Are you easily distracted? You know, if say emails are, are popping in or do you switch all that off when you're writing?
3: Um pretty much I, I pretty much uh kind of not got an internet presence at the moment. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm on Facebook and I've got a blog and all that crap and like uh, <laughs> I, I answer emails. But I mean but 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 I'm not I'm not I'm i I've left the blog and the Facebook alone. I'm just, you know you answer the occasional email, you know. But um <clears throat> you know, for, I mean I mean from you and from you know, business business things, you know, like I'll I'll do that but nobody else. You know, it's just uh, unless like somebody calls and say like, they need a kidney or something. You
1: know, like. It. Well, Lucius, you're a star. Thank you so much for taking this call.
3: For sure, no problem.
1: Keep in touch. But that was lovely. I'll um, I'll, I'll tack that on the front of the story, and yeah, uh, okay. it'll be great. It's I, I, actually, I was going to mention the, the the Russian. You know, the Russian one. Yeah, but I'll I'll hopefully I'll, I'll phone you back for that one because I, I I sent it off and it was a great narration, but it was from a from a girl who narrated a female who narrated it, but she wasn't comfortable <laughs> with it being, you know, like a kind of a male point of view. She says so. I put a, a shout out on Twitter and I got a great like actor. a
3: male point of view. Well, <laughs> that seems sort of odd. Well, you know, was she. I mean, she was worried about the male point of view.
1: That's what she says. You know what I mean? And like I say, I I really um, enjoyed the, the narration, but
3: I've huh. I've got
1: because I even says, well, I like it. you know what I mean? But she was a little bit kind of hesitant still. So it's in the hands of another narrator. So
3: huh. it was sort of about a, a woman who was, you know, like. Manipulating men and, and doing a very good job of it, you know. <laughs> like I mean, that's, that's, I'm not sure why
1: she would have I don't know. You know? I, don't, I, I don't know. I mean, I'll, I'll try and um, I'll put a, I'll try and upload it and put a link to so you can, if you want to do, to have a listen to it. You know what I mean? But yeah, you know, and if if you come back and say that's fantastic, Tony, we'll see if we can persuade that. But anyway, it's actually. It's a, it's a guy that's doing it now and I haven't i haven't heard back from him for a couple of weeks anyway so uh,
3: maybe the story really hurt her <laughs> I don't
1: well, No, she's she's actually she's read some pretty hard hitting ones as well before yeah, so no, no. we'll see we'll see yeah
3: but well, that's okay but you, you got another guy
1: huh yes and I'll tell you what um, it'll well it'll be a couple of months um volume two comes out you know me me book and I couldn't I couldn't figure off the top of the head what the story was you sent us I'll send yeah. you I'll send you a copy of that when that comes out as well mm-hmm.
3: okay well I've I'll, 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 I'll got some more short stories out for us and I've been writing some that are
1: oh yes please or,
3: or, or, or shorter anyway like I mean they're not i got a really good vampire story but I mean I don't know if I can print that or yeah that iPod it yet because like I don't know if the editor would like that but I'll ask her but uh, it's a pretty good vampire story well,
1: is that is that the one that's in um, Ellen, Ellen Datlow's? Yeah. Yeah. Well, because I, I might get, try and get her to give us to get her on the phone like this and do a little interview, and then that would, if I got that one narrated, that would coincide. Yeah, you know, that's yeah. a bit it's, of like publicity. Well, I'll, for that.
3: I'll send that along to you. You know, it's like i I'm pretty pleased with it. You know, like, uh, but anyway, you know, like. Um, what, um, just I've got how, some other stuff. Go ahead.
1: What, I just going to say what um, point of view it is. That's what I'm always keen to find out straight away. So I, I kind of
3: picture... It's, you a, it's a young girl, eighteen years old. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, uh, but I mean, it's a, it's a YA story, but I mean, it's, but it's not really a YA story. I mean, because it's, you know, all full of cuss words and stuff and <laughs> like, uh, you know, and, and pretty much adult attitudes. You know, I mean, she's a, she's 15 going on 40, you know, like, you know, this girl is like... Uh, kind of a slutty girl, you know, a high, you know, high school slut, you know, kind of in like kind of kind of wise to the ways of the world, you know. So, you know, she's uh, you, know, man, you know, I mean, you know, I kind of dug that story. I mean, I kind of liked it.
1: Oh, well, so, um, I would love to play it. To be quite honest, if that's all right and
3: yeah, I'll, well, t- I'll send you I'll send you a couple of, in the in a few days, when I get 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 a minute to like sift through the wall of yes,
1: stuff that I've got, yes. yeah, like well, that would that know. would be. Great. I mean, now I'm away for a, like a, a couple of weeks now, um, from Sunday, anyways, on holiday, so I'm kind of out. But just please send it over, and I'll I'll answer you, or whenever you can send it over, and I'll drop you an email of thanks when I get it when I pick them up. Okay, but that would
3: be lovely. Yeah, no problem. I'll do that. But- you know, so anyway, how are you doing? Everything going good?
1: Yes, well, did I tell you that, because um, I was going for a new job, and I was right, I, I don't know, I was all kind of concentrating on this new job, and I haven't been able to like, do the interviews and stuff, and I don't know if I mentioned that to you as well, but I got this new job, but I haven't started it yet, so we'll just have to wait and see when, when I start it, because someone's got to like, do my job. It's, it's a job within the company still. So I'm
3: getting on, I'm getting on Skype, by the way.
1: Right. Well that's that's it's actually handy. It's it's um I can call you on Skype you know, and do interviews like that on Skype but it's just the, the same on um I found it's easier just doing it on telephone as it's well. It's
3: cheaper. It's just cheaper on it's cheaper on Skype though, right?
1: Yes. I mean it's it's god this this phone call is probably going to cost I don't know how much it is over there but 4 pence, 10 pence, you know, probably like yeah. half a dollar or something like that. It's it's,
3: it's Oh, that's not bad. No, it's
1: because I am going through Skype. I'm calling you through Skype on your mobile, oh. you know, on your, like, house line. So yeah. every six months, I'll put in probably $10 into my Skype account. And I can phone, you know, i have phone them all the bloody... Because not many writers have got Skype, you know, especially the old-timers. And I'm not counting you in the old-timers here. I'm oh, con- you
3: might as well, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, no, I ha- I'm having to get it because I'm um, I'm going to be making a lot of phone c- starting in uh, October or November. In well, November I'm going to be in Europe but like uh the end of this year sometime like I have to make, start making a whole lot of calls back and forth between Europe and like bef- about a film project and like you know so it's going right to be, uh,
1: Oh that would be is that um, your, one of your stories getting picked up
3: um, Oh no I mean you know that's well there's that too but this is this is on a it's just an independent screenplay project you know I have going you know and so it's like uh we're going to have to be talking every day. And so I figured, you know, better, better to get Skype, be cheaper that way, you know.
1: Well, you can get them get the Skype now on your mobile phone, do you know what I mean, as well? So yeah, you can do it straight from your mobile phone to whoever's got it on.
3: Yeah, I, my, my problem is, you know, like I, I, I don't have a regular mobile phone. I use it, I only use a mobile phone like uh, when I have a journalism assignment, you know, then I just buy a cheap one and, you know you know and then throw it away you know pretty much you know i mean you know it's 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 so cheap i just lose the phone or something you know I'm like uh but you know um i may have to get a mobile phone because you know
1: well I actually just, if you're just like um sitting on a laptop or carrying a laptop around with you do you know what i mean you can, right. you can speak to anybody anybody in the world you know via skype yeah
3: no it's, i'm gonna i think that's good and like uh but I may have to get a mobile phone too. I mean, you know, I'm, I've been fighting the fighting the idea for ten years, and like, uh, <laughs> you know, like just because uh, you know, it's you know, I, don't, I don't I don't like people calling me when I'm, you know, like uh, uh, traveling around or you know, uh, you know, go driving somewhere or something like that. I really don't. You know, I just don't. So I feel figure, I figured it's an invasion of privacy. You know, so
4: for me. You know, it is anyway. I mean, I don't
3: like you know. I just don't like communicating with people you know? <laughs> I guess but no, I mean it's like uh, you know uh, it's it's just annoying you know like and uh, when it starts raining all the time and so i I've just been just been using them for for journalism assignments when 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 I'm dealing with people like actors and and uh athletes who do nothing but text. You know, they, they won't communicate any other way, you know, but
1: text. Oh, so, uh, know. It's, it's a. Fa- I mean, just my um, me daughter, do you know what I mean? Like 14-year-old daughter, it's just bizarre how they just constantly text and they can write in, you know, over here so quickly on a phone, like a text. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah. just phone, you know, and just just say, you know, but no, it's, it's, it's all text in, in the UK, that's like... How yeah,
3: a yeah lot of no, it's the same way in here you yeah. know, it's just, especially with teenagers you know but 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 i mean you know a lot of a lot of, I, I do a lot of interviews when i do journalism it's usually either in the in the area of uh, acting or 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 uh, sports you know i did, i just did a piece on a mixed martial arts fighter you know, and like um, you know, he, he just won't communicate with anybody. He just what is, except with his thumbs. You know, that's the only way he'll do it. You know, so it's you know, you got to do it too. <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm not very fast. I have to look at the numbers and know, book, pick, You know,
1: well, I know that's ex- it's exactly with me. Do you know what I mean? I've got one of these kind of fancy iPhones, but it takes me flicking the edges to send. You know what I mean? It's quicker just a phone. Do you
3: know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, for me too. But I mean, I haven't got magic thumbs like a 14 year old. So you know. You know, they've, they've got it down pat
1: there, you know. Might i tell you what I've um, I'd noticed with the You know, I wouldn't take my phone abroad, you know, because it's one of them internet phones. Apparently you get hit with, you'd be careful with that, like loads of charges. You know, if you go, oh, yeah. go over there, because I was speaking to, I don't know if you know, Cheryl Morgan. She's some, like, a, a fan writer, a science fiction fan writer. She just, whichever country she goes to, she just buys one of yours, like, say, comes to the U.S., just buys a cheapy U.S. throwaway phone and uses that. You know, and puts, say like yeah. £20 on. Because if you're taking your own phone over, you get hit for so many charges.
3: I didn't know that, huh? Uh, well, that's probably what I'll do too, you know, like, won't make, well, when, I have, when I'm I in Europe, it's... It's,
1: uh, it's just as quick to buy. A, apparently, what they do is just, just sell them at the airport. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just buy yeah. buy a cheap one at the airport and use that instead of using your yeah. own, because you just yeah. get hit with loads of bills. yeah.
3: No, 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 I'm probably going to have to do that this fall because I'm going to to Paris, to Nantes, to, uh...
1: Oh, yeah, did you... Is, is, is Nantes the... Um, for the convention? Yeah. Oh, because right, I was there. They invited me. It was great, mind you, that you got Louis, like,
3: free... No, yeah, I've been there three times. Right. You know, like, yeah, so it's, it's an old home week. I, I got to go to C- Paris for some signings, and Krakow and uh, Warsaw and Geneva. So, you know, like, uh... You know, busy, busy, you know.
1: It's funny, I would love to go to, uh, the, the, like, the. U- it's funny how I, I, I fancy going to Europe more than the U.S., you know, the U.S. just seems far too far away, you know, with like a couple of conventions in somewhere like Finland or somewhere like that would be cool, I think. Well, the Finland,
3: Finland, the, the big convention over there is supposed to be great. I've never been there, but, like, uh, but yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I'd rather go to Europe than the States. The States is, you know, I don't know, I don't like it here, you know, but anyway, you know, like, you know well, listen, yeah.
1: I'm not a big fan, you know. Lucy, you know, if you ever come over to the UK, you know what I mean, we'll hopefully try and get up for a, get the meet up and have a drink in that. Be oh, your, for sure. Uh, be, I mean, I'm... Yeah, I,
3: I'm going to be over there at some point next year, I think. I'm going to, I was thinking of we coming for uh, Easter Con. You know is that a big convention there yes yeah, yeah. yes yeah, like, um, you know, I was thinking of coming in there for you
1: know I don't know if you go to those or not but, actually you know. i don't i don't Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I have, i've only i don't really go to the conventions you know what I mean it's um I went to that French one which was actually I thoroughly enjoyed it you know what I mean but i don't uh um, that's no, good yeah yeah I mean were who, you there i was it was probably two year ago now oh yeah William Gibson was the the kind of that the guest of honor there.
3: You should have been there, like you know. I think about four years ago before it changed. Yes, you know? I've heard. Yeah. I've
1: heard it was supposed to be really good.
3: I mean, you know, they took care. If you were a guest there, man, they just laid it on, and it was really amazing. You know, like I mean, but I've heard they changed a little bit since uh, since Patrick's separating. You know. Patrick Geiger I don't
1: know if you met him or not I don't I, I might have I might, yes I think I actually did to be quite I think I was like having a, a drink with them all one night yeah but the, you know I was enjoying myself because you got all these kind of free tickets but when they were saying oh you should have been here
3: four years yeah. ago
1: when it was just like total
3: <laughs> yeah no, it, was, it was really awesome then you know I went twice when it was like that it was really really good you know like uh, but you know the economy got it down I guess you know so but you know, I mean it's a big deal there, man. It's like, you know, I mean seriously big deal. The 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 mayor of Knott's comes out for it and, you know, does his thing, you know, and I mean it's like
1: uh well, celebrate. Hopefully if yeah. um, if if Starship Sofa wins, did you know we're up for a Hugo Award? Hmm? Did you know I was up I, for I was up You for, are? Oh y- yeah, that's y- cool. Yes, uh best um what's it best fanzine? I'm up for a huge... Oh. So if if I win that, hopefully so I <laughs> might get some more invites.
3: <laughs> yeah, no, sure. Yeah, that'd be good, you know, like, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, it's, you know, you, 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 the European conventions, you know, I mean, and i would tell you what, what, what I like is, like, because I write film reviews, you know, like, uh, I, I got invited to film festivals in Europe, you know, like about three or four of those, and that's really awesome. And they put you up in five-star hotels, and you know, they give you everything. Man, it's like you know, you get a gift bag full of junk. You know, for cool for junk.
1: for writing the film reviews, you get put up for.
3: Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, they they put me on the jury of film festivals. You know, right. like, you know, you know, and like, uh, and in that, you know, and so I, I was on the jury uh, last time I was over. I was on the jury of the. Uh, the one in Locarno and the one in, uh, one in, in, uh, And like, uh, you know, so that was really cool because I mean, to put me up in a hotel was just like, you know, I mean, God could have done well there. You know, I mean, it was like, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like, uh, you know, it was amazing, man. You know, like, and they give you, they give you a gift bag, it's all full of shit, like, you know, cell phones and little mini computers and stuff. You
1: jewel oh, oh, never. But, yeah, man, I mean, it's
3: big stuff, man. Like, uh, I mean, perfume, which really didn't do me much good, but like, you know, I found a place for it. But, you know, it's like, uh, you know, really good stuff. And like, uh, you know, they treat you really good, treat you like a star and all that stuff, you know, and. All you have to do is watch movies. You know, and, you know, like, you know like, I could get along with that kind of shit. You know,
1: like. I tell you, I haven't um, read. I don't know. I don't know if read by. I don't know if you wrote one yet. Have you seen Inception? Yeah. Go, go on and tell us what you think of it. Then did did you like it or not?
3: No, I didn't really like it. Oh man, I thought it was fantastic. <laughs> I mean, I thought it was. I thought it was a pretty pedestrian summer movie. I mean, it was like. A, <laughs> All the beginning it was like you know just dazzling it was psycho babble it didn't mean anything, and then you know everybody's going like, Oh, it's so difficult to figure out. you have to see it several times, and well, what's to figure out I mean it's nothing, and then you know the action scenes in the end were there was one good one with the um the shifting gravity fight, you know yes, you know. That was excellent but the other stuff looked like you know james bond nintendo game you know like and, and you know i did, i just thought the uh the whole idea of turning the subconscious into a video game was just stupid man i mean it was like you know just like every other movie becomes a video game and like you know and then you know there's a lot of things i had problems with like the fact that the characters didn't have any character i mean you know i mean what was it what was the point of having ellen page there i mean she just you know all she was is a sounding board for, um, for DiCaprio. And DiCaprio is like, uh, all, he, all he does anymore is, is like frown and look unshaven. And like, I, I just, I just didn't think it was a very good movie. You know, I mean, I mean, there are a lot of really dumb things in it. Like, you know, when the guy, you know, they're saying, yes, gee, I mean, you know, like, um, it's so difficult to achieve inception. And like we have to go in so deep, and the subjects keep waking up. And he, and the guy says, "Well, I've found a solution for that." And they say, "What?" And they say, "He says a more powerful sedative." And, and everybody goes, "Wow, genius!" I mean, you know, I just, you know, I didn't, I didn't quite get that. You know? like, anyway, I, th- I thought it was kind of, uh, kind of average. You know, like I mean, it was just like. Another summer movie, you
1: know. Did you walk out thinking it was average, you know, straight away, or did you, did you have to go? No, and- I, I, I mean, it was the kind of
3: movie that almost left my head completely by the time I hit the parking
1: lot. Really? Oh God, yeah. I, so yeah, um, I don't know what maybe I'm not watching the right, but I came out thinking, yes, that was for me. That that would do. You, know what I mean? you liked it. Oh, you I like certainly it. I don't know if I'm getting like wrapped up in the music score as well, because I've got the the I, I got the download of the music score, but it, yeah. I think it just all came together. Do you know what I mean? And-
3: <coughs> well, I, you know, it's like, you know, everybody's got a different idea, but, like, I, I mean, I just thought it was, like, banal. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, you know, it's just an excuse for another fucking video game. You know, like, I mean, how many of those do you want to see in your life? I mean, you know, it's like. Uh, I mean, it was just like a video game. I mean, had all the levels and all that shit. And, like, I mean, it was just, you know. I mean, the dreams, like, you know, the dreams seemed too corporate and tame. I mean, I mean, Nolan's idea of the subconscious, I mean, wasn't unruly enough. I mean, it's like, I mean, without, you know, I mean, you know, like, I mean, I much preferred you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, because, like, I mean, the idea of dreams, like, is... Terrifying and, and like surprising and amazing and surreal. I mean, you know that was that was handled much better. I mean, this was a dream. I mean, the guy must have been a boring sod, you know. This <laughs> you know, like inside of his head must have been like the inside of a a fucking bubble gum machine, because I mean, you know, it just it just didn't seem that interesting. And I know that's not the way things are.
1: It's funny, you know, that. because I I like as well DiCaprio. I think him and, I don't know, um, see. Walberg and Matt Damon—they're they're the actors I kind of really like now. And uh,
3: yeah. you know, they,
1: was it the one DiCaprio was in Departed? Did you not like? Did you like that by any chance? Or
3: well, I like the original movie, which was called Infernal Affairs, which was a Chinese movie, a uh, uh, Hong Kong movie, which was great. And I thought, I thought the remake was disastrous.
1: <laughs> no, I oh, can through every film I'm sure let' let's try one more I'll try one more because I've just been to see with the family Toy Story three. Have you seen that yet?
3: oh i haven't, I haven't seen that no. you know, I'd probably like that a lot better you know than the other two. I mean, the part it was like you know actually laugh out loud, funny to me. I mean I just you know because the uh the original movie, The Infernal Affairs, was so great, it was just such a unique action film. You know, and, and, to tell you, and sort of mystery who done it film and why are not who done it but like you know, who's gonna do it you know, film or something like that. You know, it was like uh but but by the time Square Stacy got done with it, it was like, you know, just this average kinda you know, like um hood gangster film. I mean, I just didn't feel feel much, you know
2: so,
1: d- d- uh, i did it follow yeah. the same? Did it follow the same plot or not? Because or, I haven't.
3: Oh, well, it changed it a little bit, you know. I mean, it, it, it was like some stuff left out, you know, and mean they always leave some stuff out, you know, and like uh, usually it's good, good stuff, and like uh I just don't like remakes. I mean, you know, I mean they're always like, uh I, I like right now they're re- really about to release this remake of Let the Right One In. Which is that vampire movie? Yeah, you, did you see that?
1: I haven't, no, but I, I've I've heard about it.
3: Well, it's it's great, it's fantastic. I mean, but you know, you can tell. looking at the preview that this they're just going to rent it. They're just going to you know take all the nuance and subtlety out of it and just make a, a horror picture out of it. And it was it was a horror. It was a horror picture, but it was a lot more than that. You know, in the original s- Swedish version or Nor- or Norwegian version. It was really complex and good, and, and the kids were just amazing. But I I, I don't know. I just, I, I wouldn't want to see that. I wouldn't want to see it. So remakes generally I don't like. I mean, you know, like uh, there are some that, that are better than the original. There very few, but but film, re, re, foreign remakes, remakes of foreign films by the American film industry as it's currently, currently uh, you know, as it currently is just aren't really that good i mean you know they, they take all the uh the subtlety of it and they they over explain everything they uh i mean they, they they're playing to an audience over here that's dumbed down so badly that you know it's like uh they, they feel like it's necessary to explain everything three or four times you know and not necessarily in departed but you know in any kind of science fiction film so, or Do you like think
1: that. Inception was over? Explained then for for your personal tastes.
3: No, I mean you know I mean it was just bullshit. You know <laughs> I mean I, I no I mean I listen I mean I, I listened carefully to them going through all that crap in the beginning, and it was like. And then the whole thing hinges on having like the whole the machine which is like a, a sort of a Game Boy. <laughs> you know, like, you know, with uh, with five things leading into it. I mean, you know, I mean that was really dub, Like I mean, I thought they, they, they made they mad, had massive missed opportunities. Like the the really interesting thing about the whole process of, you know, inception or, or anything like anything they were doing was like the dream was dream the dream design, you know. On how you translated these architectural drawings into actual structures in a dream, you know? And now, if they wanted to explain that, that would have been really cool. And if they wanted to show the stresses that put on the uh, designer, which DiCaprio probably has, has, I, I had obviously suffered, you know, I mean, that would have been interesting. In fact, I thought they should have made him the designer of the dream, you know, because he said, oh, I can't do it because just <clears throat> Maliki's popping up and and then, you know, she pops up anyway, <laughs> you know, so they didn't really need Ellen Page, I mean, she was just an extraneous character.
1: I oh, mean, I never, you know, yes, you're right, I never thought about that, she still popped up anyways.
3: No, I mean, she's just she's, just, she's just ridiculous, her, her presence there was not required, I mean, she was just, she was there, you know, just for some, you know, to have a girl, you <laughs> know, like, you know, and like, uh, I mean, it was like, uh, you know, I mean, just there's so many things in that movie that just didn't make sense. I mean, you know, and the psychobabble part, you know, was like, I mean, if you listen to it, it was just like, when you, you know, we have a slogan over here, a uh, saying over here in the States, if you can't persuade him with logic, dazzle him with bullshit. <laughs> and that's sort of what it was like, you know, <laughs> like, and so they just you know gabble, gabble, gabble all this stuff and like. Uh, but the real fascinating thing to me was the dream design. I mean, they should have you know. I, I wanted to see you know. I mean, if Mal had pro, uh, if if Dom, Dom had problems with with that, I mean, it would have been a lot cooler to have him design the dream because he you know he and if Mal was going to pop up anyway. I mean, who better than to, to deal with her than some guy who knows her, you know, and like, you know, if he's trying to keep her out or anything like that. Or, I mean, it just would, that was like, you know, the process of dream design is like the process of all art, you know, like film and, and writing and everything. You're trying to control a person's head, and make them see something, make them feel something that they ordinarily wouldn't feel. And, like, you know, that would have been an interesting level to put on it. Might, it might have given DiCaprio, I uh, would have expanded and made more complex his character, which is very minimally sketched, you know. So, you know, I don't know. I, I just had a lot of problems. I could talk to you all night. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Lucius, can hey. I, I mean, this, me MP3 recorder, still recording there now. Do you want us, to, can I put the whole, what we've just been talking about, or do you want us to... Um oh, can you can put it up, yeah. Honestly, it's 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 just bloody talking, you know. And hopefully, we'll, we'll do this again, and because it's um, it's nice to get your thoughts on. Because honestly, I, I bloody loved that um, Inception. <laughs> I, I don't know if I was dazzled by. The music and, you know, anything that's got slow motion in it. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it, the sound goes a bit kind of slow motion. And sound
3: yeah, right bullet now. time. <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> bullet, bullet time. I mean, you know, it's like, well, that's a, your John Wu thing. You know, like, I mean, you know, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm really unhappy with Nolan. I think he's, he's made, you know, he made two pictures that were really interesting. And he made a movie called Following, which is a black and white movie he made in England, which is only 70 minutes long, was quite good. And then he made Memento.
1: You like because I like that one. Did you like that one?
3: Oh yeah, right. You know, I thought that was that was that was really interesting. And then after that, it's been all fucking downhill. I mean, you know. I mean, as far as I can see, I mean, you know, like uh, the prestige was it was all right. You know, I mean, although it, it made the made the characters a little. I don't know. I just I just really was in love with that book and like. Uh, it made the characters so much more nasty than they were in the book, you know. Like, I, I, I didn't appreciate that. But then now he's on to the Batman movies. I mean, they're comparing him to Stanley fucking Kubrick. I mean, this is, this is, Inception is, is Nolan's seventh film. Kubrick's seventh film was a L- Lolita. You know, his eighth film was, uh, you know, uh, uh, I think uh, 2001. And his ninth film was, the Clockwork Orange. I mean, I don't think, I don't think Nolan's even in the same class as him. You know, like, I mean, you know, he's made, and, you know, I mean, bat, all these bat flicks and like, uh, and he made a bad remake called Insomnia, which is a remake of a, of a, of a Danish picture, I think, or a Swedish picture, one, and like, um, bad remake. And like, uh, you know, he's made Inception, you know, like, uh, which, you know, I, I don't know, I just, I can't, can't understand all the reviews. I mean, all the reviews over here about the ones that don't like it, you know, which, you know, I usually don't read, but I, I was just so, so incredulous that people were raving about this film. that I, I went and read them, in essence. So all the people who don't like it are people like the New Yorker, the New York Times, like, uh, you know, I mean, the Village Boys, people like that. I mean, it's like uh, pretty good reviewers. And all the people who, who do like it are like, you know, you know, entertainment tonight. I mean, this isn't knocking necessarily. I'm just saying, you know, for someone who sees a lot of film, you know, and for someone who, who has to think about the films to, in order to, you know, I have to, I have to write 2,000 words on these film reviews. And so I'm forced to think about them. And, like, you know, I can't just sit there, you know, and, like, grrr. You know, like, you know, I, that, like, I mean, you know, I wish I could. I mean, I would be a happier man.
0: If, you know, like,
3: I would be a happier man if I could just sit there and you know, like, uh, OD on sugar and, and coke and, you know, do that. But, like, you know, I mean, you, you, get, in, you get in this head where you, you think about the films, and if they don't make sense, it pisses you off, you know? So, I mean, you know, it's... Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, that's probably, you know, not a good thing, you know, for, for watching a lot of movies. And it's probably why I watch most of the movies I see are foreign films and the, that I like, are foreign films that are films, you know, like, uh, you know, films, I mean, English, French, you know, like, uh, I like, I love English gangster pictures. I mean, those are the great, great, great gangster pictures. But British gangster pictures, but, uh, like,
1: the... Uh, like modern-day gangster pictures, or just gangster pictures in general? Oh,
3: like, you know, like, the Sexy Beast, you know, like... Right, you yes. ring, ring You know, things like that. I mean, you know, that's not, you know... I don't like all of them, but I like a lot of them, you know, and, like, uh, you know, I mean, it's... Um,
1: Do you not think those British ones have had the, the time as well? I'm just thinking, I don't know if... Um, you know, the kind of, the likes of the snatch and the lock stock and two smoking barrels.
3: I'm not, I'm not a big fan of Richie, you know, no, 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 don't like him too much, you know, like, I mean, I always feel like, you know, he's kind of, I don't know, I always feel like he's not a real guy. I mean, he's not really, you know, doing a gangster film, he's commenting on a gangster film more, you know, like, I mean, he's, Making fun of them, you know, kind of, and like, you know, I I'm just, uh, I like, I like my films, my gangster films, do not have much of a sense of humor, except internal in the internal characters. I mean, you know, like, to not be commentary. I like, you know, I like, you know, I mean, I watch a whole lot of British TV, you know, like a lot, like, you know, all these, you know. Bloody fucking TV shows! Like I, you know, like I have to buy over or Amazon UK, uh, you know. And like uh, I just got through watching Ashes to Ashes, and I like that a lot. You know, I mean, you know. But
1: which which one did you have? You seen all the series or just? Yep. The, yep. And you liked the, all all of them, did you?
3: Yeah, I kind of liked the three. I, I liked it a lot better than uh,
1: even the very very ending. Did Because I don't kind of give the ending. Well,
3: it you was know, a lot like the ending of Lost. I was I was kind of happy with everybody goes into the bar there is heaven ending you know like uh, you know like uh, but you know I thought it was pretty good up until the end you know I'll tell you what there and is like, good
1: out over here at the minute I don't you you'll probably be able to get it on uh, torrent is Sherlock
3: Yeah I just I just ordered that
1: Yes oh well the, the first I've just seen the second one and the second one was it was uh, all right but the first one I thought was excellent you know what I mean so Yeah I um, just
3: just ordered that on uh, I think I, I think they're shipping it out to me all around mid-August, you know. So you yeah, know, from Amazon UK, I, I don't I don't get things on torrent. I, I just cannot download. I'm just not able to.
1: Ah, uh, yes, uh, yes, I was going. Yes, I would take
3: a. I'm just not not functionally literate on a computer, <laughs> but um, but anyway, yeah. No, I you know, yeah, I got that. That sounded great, you know. And like, uh, you know, I I mean, even stuff like waking the dead and like you know, spooks and stuff like that is is so much better than the stuff we have on TV over here you know like you
1: know so and it's funny how we seem to import a load of americanness like tvs on the telly and you obviously use americans must import because i've i've heard a couple of times where people are getting all our british crime tv programs over there you know like you see on dvd and stuff like that yeah no
3: it's good man. you know i mean you know it's like um i mean I don't like all of them, but, you know.
1: Like, you're not a f- you're not a fan of that Robson Green, are you? <laughs> no, I don't
3: like Robson Green. <laughs> nah, I didn't like that one. I didn't like. Uh,
1: I don't know. They had the Hepha one. I can't remember the name of it now.
3: Something so in that, the that was, Wire, is it? Um, no, I didn't like that that much. Um, I like, you
1: know, I mean. I tell you why I, I like, don't. I tell you why I don't like him. Is he because he lives like round this area in the northeast of England? And yet he's lost his. he he puts on this kind of false accent now as if he's like he's left his roots behind, you know what I mean, but every now and again when he gets excited, I hear him talking and he's he slips back into his normal self and it's proper we call like a Geordie accent, you know what he oh yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, he tries to lose it as if he's embarrassed by the northeast of England, <laughs>
3: yeah well you know i, I you know. I had some eerie times in the northeast of England. I mean, I couldn't understand anybody. Like, you know, I mean, I I had one guy, you know, this is the coldest winter in English history back in the 60s. And this guy threw me out of his truck because he kept me, he picked me up. To keep him awake, and I couldn't understand fuck all he was saying, you know. Like so, I mean, you know, I just he, he goes, "Whoa, whoa, he, I go, "What?" You know, like, no, can you repeat that? And like, he got so mad at me.
1: It's a fact, man. You know, because it's maybe I do it sometimes. You know, I sometimes try and be careful because. You can we can talk fast, and yeah. we get a you know when I first started the show, we used to get loads of emails saying you know it took it takes you a couple of weeks, three weeks to like to pick up on the you know the the speed and the dialect. So,
3: oh yeah, well I had the, you know that that's, that series, the red little red riding ride, red riding hood series that you had over there, right, right. I mean I couldn't understand that without the subtitles. <laughs> <laughs> i mean you know i mean it was i mean if i worked at it you know but that took all the enjoyment out of it you know like i mean you know was having to sit there and figure out what was being said and so finally i lifted some subtitles off the internet and got it you know but like uh
1: what
0: were you, what are you now,
1: doing in the northeast of england then in the 60s
3: i was uh, hitchhiking down to uh to london where i ended up with pneumonia and then i Got well and went to Spain. I was like, had so little money. I was like, uh, I was trying to kill squirrels in a park in Malaga to eat.
4: Oh, yeah.
3: Yeah, I was finally ended up uh, ended up in Torrelinos, which at that point was (laughs) a hip town. You know, like I mean, you know, and like uh, so, I started making these. uh, these sort of uh, collages out of construction paper and lottery tickets and shit. And I was, I was I was a hippie, you know, and I had all this long hair and shit. And, like, I was wandering around selling these uh, lottery tickets, like, to the people in the cafes who were like the Duke of Bedford and stuff like that, you know. <laughs> it was like, I mean, you know, all these chess set people, you know, and, like, uh, but, uh, you know, they thought I was cute. It's, knows why.
1: <laughs> it's funny, you know, me, me dad, but because in in the northeast of England, we, we used to, me dad used to move around all the time. We're always like following him. Like, we had to, me mom had to move different house. would I mean, we had loads, like, we stayed in, pub, we lived in pubs, like restaurants, fish and ship shops. And there was once where we we're, were living in this pub, we organized this, like a, a charity hitchhike to Monte Carlo and back. It was the first one. Uh. It was like all the regulars out of the pub and all the regulars out of the pub were like alcoholics and they just one one weekend apparently decided that for charity to hitchhike down to Monte Carlo and they were on the news and everything and here some of them never got there you know they're all like drunk <laughs> skunks all over the kind of europe you know they are just get in the back of a car and didn't get these my dad got there but he says there was a few of them never got never got there we ended up in germany and all over the place and it was one of the, you know never yeah never sorted out. that's
3: funny i was really young when i was doing it i was like you know 15 and like you know 16 17 like uh a- and I was, I you know, I, I did shit that I'm surprised I survived. You know, like I mean, it was like you know, absolutely crazy. Some of the stuff that happened, you know, like you know, I was like you know, but I ended up in Spain and that was all right. You know, and I ended up teaching at this American school. I I told the guy I was 22, and like um, I'm teaching English with a bunch of all all these Brits, you know, like who were like you know, about half of them junkies, <laughs> like. <laughs> I mean that school was the worst school. anybody who went to it never learned anything. I mean, it's you know. I mean, for my my part, you know, I I mean, I was teaching classes made up of Arabs, Italians, Germans. I couldn't speak any of that stuff. I could speak Spanish, but you know, so I put a little picture on the board of a bird and I go point at it and go bird. that was that was how i taught english i mean you know like it and i else i'd do funny things for them the glass they'd make them laugh you know but that was about it you know and i was fucking you know not i was not shooting dope i mean some of these guys would come in there go to sleep (laughs) like (laughs)
1: How, how long were you in spain for then
3: um <laughs> On and off, I was there for quite a while, two years. But I, I took out a lot of trips. I was over to over to North Africa a lot, and I was up to, to Copenhagen. I, I, we were running running uh, running uh, keef into England, and this was like, uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> like, you know, I, I was. I, I, I mean, this is how disorganized we were. We had a Volvo, and we packed it with fifty kilograms of keef, right? in the doorways, and we got we somehow passed through customs customs in England, but we had nowhere to sell it. I mean, we figured, like, you know, we'd just go, you know, in the corners, and, you know, people would come running up to buy a kilo, you know, and so, like, so we ended up, I mean, we had a whole lot of fucking weird trips, man. We ended up with these two guys in London named Roger and Arthur. Cockney guys, you know, and like uh, and they would drive us around in a car all day looking for people who, to buy a kilo. And, you know, they were they were like Fagans. They had all these little tykes working for them, you know, and like you'd say, you, you, know, like, you know, one time I said, wow, that's a nice sport coat. And she says, Martha would go, you want it? <laughs> you <know>? <laughs> 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 I'd say, yeah, sure, you know. Like, what the hell? And this little kid would run in and grab it, grab a sport coat, 42 long, you know, and like... Uh, and so we were ending up. We had this hotel room full of merchandise, you know, electric typewriters and all this shit. You know, like, you know, I mean, it was ridiculous, and like, and like, uh, we weren't making enough money, so we had to get, we had to get stern with Arthur and Roger, and you know, tell them what we really needed. You know, but it was like, you know, it was really, it was, I mean, it was like, you know, it was Keystone Cops, you know, stuff. It was like, yeah, absolutely absurd. But you know, I'm, for some reason, the authorities never tumbled to it. So you know, they you know let us go or something.
1: I'm gonna ask so this. I'm gonna ask this last question here. Have you settled down then, <laughs> or is still the, the young wild kid in you?
3: Well, no. I mean, you know, I'm you know like 62 now, man. You know, like you know, I mean, yeah, I'm pretty. I'm pretty like different than I was. I mean, but like, I still. You know I'm going to australia for six months next year, so you know i mean who knows what the hell is happen there i mean you know like i I'm, I'm so it's, I, I always like traveling i mean you know it's like uh traveling is like you know drug
1: is it I mean, is that is that how um you think of it do you do you love the traveling do you
3: Oh, yeah, totally. And, you know, it really informs our work. And, you know, like, uh, I mean, I, I like to travel. I mean, I like to go somewhere and just sit down for three months and just explore this one little place. I don't like to... I don't want to go to Australia and just, you know, see Australia in six months. I want to go to one or two places and get to know those places really well, you know, and, like, uh, you know, and spend about three months in each, you know. And so. Uh,
1: have you got somewhere you know, to stay in Australia, have you?
3: Yeah, I do, yeah. And, like... Uh, at least in one of the places and there's a chance I'll be working on a film over there too so I mean that'll, that'll be another thing but um, but yeah you know it's like you know
1: hey what a lifestyle you've got
3: well it kind of yeah I mean but I mean, it's not it's not as glamorous or weird as it seems I mean but it just it's just like
1: it's a freedom it, though isn't it do you know what I mean, I mean yeah, that's it's what it free,
3: is yeah yeah it really is free I really like that and I just like being able to you know you know, just say you know, hell, I'll get, I'll go somewhere this weekend and then stay gone for three months. You know, <laughs> like you know, like yeah, I, I think that. You know, like so. And that's the way I've always been. You know, I mean, you know, that's why I have no good relationships. <laughs> <laughs> you go <going But>, away. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> I'll be back. I'll be back a couple months, maybe. You know, like.
1: Well, yeah, well, bloody not.
3: <laughs> yeah, more or less. That's that's the story my life yeah. oh, but anyway yeah it's like uh, been been interesting
1: lucius i've uh, i've loved this it's been really nice hopefully we can you know i'll phone you up again we'll just chat on that'd be lovely yeah oh no oh, i just saw a guy get hit with a baseball in the head and
3: that's pretty bad oh, nice. anyway nice. <laughs> anyway yeah it's really nice talking to you Tony, and like I'll, I'll send you that stuff
1: okay right, that would be lovely and look after yourself and take good care yep. okay ma'am, you do Lu- lucius you're a star thank you so much
3: Bye bye, thanks.
1: Bye bye. There you go. I hope you enjoyed that interview. That was just made my idea that it was excellent. I came home from, I'd been working late and I, I got in the house for about 10 o'clock and I was, Melanie, Melanie, I've got to I'm just going to phone up someone, 10 minute interview. And I was just, here yeah, sitting till you're I'm listening. Lucius, excellent. Lucius, you're a star. Thank you so much. So, main fiction, Carlos Manson Lives by Lucius Shepard. See, I got that wrong way around as well, so <laughs> I'm, all, I'm all giddy and all apart. pot. Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present.
4: Carlos Manson Lives by Lucius Shepard. No matter how fucked up I get, I can always float. I have this amazing capacity for floating. Maybe being smacked out makes me unnaturally buoyant. Hard to say, since the only time I ever do any serious floating is when I'm high. The other night, I made a party in the canyon given by this guy who does lights for arena shows. Extremely boring. There was a Brit, Eric, something. Said he was with a virgin. He kept rubbing up against my ass and nudging my tits with his elbow as if by accident. He talked about my music. Not the usual vapid LA stroking. He never once said he was moved by my tunes, nor did he use profound as a modifier. He gushed over the way I manipulated words and changes to create emotional tone. It's fucking brilliant, like you figured out a system that enables you to produce subtle emotional responses in the listener. I found his approach soothing. If he'd been five inches taller, I might have done him. When the lighting guy broke out his dope... A continent of pressed white powder rising from a crinkled, shining sea. I scooped up a corner of the western plateau and went into a bathroom and did up. I stayed locked in for a couple of hours, nodding with my back against the tub, legs straight out. Little flash streams, looming Egyptian figures of gold and lapis lazuli. A cluttered room dressed in murky greens and browns. Distorted shadows stretching from beneath the furniture. A German expressionist space. I was in there somewhere, completing the picture. A gawky, long-legged woman, pale as heroin, match heads for pupils, rock and roll hair. Every once in a while, somebody would tap on the door, trying to learn if I was dead. I'd hear discreet footsteps followed by whispers, and then they'd tap and call out softly, "'Hey, Julie! Julie, you okay?' Finally, the lighting guy himself tapped and said he really needed to make sure I was okay. I told him I wasn't coming out until I felt like people.' but if he required proof of my soundness, I could recite the alphabet backwards. It might take a while, because I was seriously impaired, but I thought I could pull it off. They left me alone after that, but I wasn't happy in the bathroom any longer. I did a couple of nose hits to boost my high and sneaked off along a corridor out onto the patio and down some steps to the pool. Behind me, the picture window in the living room looked like a big, bright postage stamp commemorating millennial decadence— There were about a dozen people left inside, and they were gathered around the coffee table, warming themselves over the lighting guy's pile of dope, cutting out lines and dipping their heads in sequence. A languid frenzy of consumption. I couldn't tell who they all were, but at least half of them lived in my house and spent my money and did things for me. The pool lights were off, but a glow came from the street, and the dusky orange of reflected L.A. shone off the inversion layer, throwing the crests of the surrounding hills into partial silhouette. The pool stirred darkly within its pale rectangular banks. It was a fairly large pool, with cabana chairs and little glass-top tables ranged around it. At the rear of the grounds, about thirty feet from the pool, was a high white stucco wall built flush against the hill, with a row of potted plants set along the base, probably holding the fucking hillside up. Somebody had spray-painted three words on the wall, but I couldn't read what they said at that distance. I took off my clothes and stepped into the shallow end. The air was cool, the water even cooler, and my skin pebbled. But by the time I kicked out into the middle and started to float, I felt warm and loose inside. I got into watching clouds of vaporized city shit, eddy and mingle overhead, like swirls of poison muddying a glass of orange juice. After a few minutes, I realized someone was watching me from one of the cabana chairs. I couldn't see him. I just got a creeped-out feeling. When I finally did see him, it was only because he crossed his legs and a shoe stuck out far enough to escape the shadow cast by the hooded top of the chair. I was too stoned to be frightened or even startled, but it pissed me off, this Hollywood bug taking the opportunity to cop a full frontal. I stroked over to the edge of the pool closest to him, leaned against the slimy tiles, rested my elbows in the gutter and let my feet float up off the bottom. "'Asshole,' I said. "'I bet this makes your memory book.' "'I expected him to be flustered, but the shoe didn't even twitch. "'You're a good-looking woman,' he said, no doubt. "'But I ain't no voyeur. "'The act of voyeurism is strictly coincidental. "'I'm just checking you out.' "'His voice was faded, weary, high-pitched, with a strong Mexican accent. "'It had a calculated vacancy that interested me. "'Oh, that's okay, then,' I said. "'Nothing perverted about that.' "'The shoe seemed to be suspended in midair.' It was so shiny black and pointy, a perfect thing. It looked like the emblem of some mysterious pathology. Wavelets slapped against the side of the pool. A police siren corkscrewed through the air from far away. The breeze carried a bitter vegetable smell that overarched the sharper smell of chlorine. You a friend of the lighting guy? I asked. I was at the party for a while. He made a hissing noise that I took for a laugh. They all talking about you in there. Wondering if you want to be left alone, or if maybe you hope one of them's going to come out and talk to you, because, like, you're depressed or some shit. That's just their way. They dote on me. Like a pack of dogs hanging around a sick, lion bitch, that's how they dote on your ass. You come to this party, man, and you expect to find healthy relationships? You must be new in town. I had the notion he was smiling. A feathery vibe of amusement wafting out from the dark cowl of the chair. "'Who the fuck are you?' I asked. "'A pale hand emerged from the shadow, "'an arm sheathed in white linen, "'a finger pointed at the wall at the spray-painted words. "'That's me. That's my name.' "'Drippy, dark-blue letters reading Carlos Manson Lives. "'Carlos Manson,' I said. "'Oh, yeah, you must be one of the Tijuana Mansons.' Nah, man, the whole thing's my name.' "'Your last name is Lives?' "'Ain't no first or last name. It's all one thing. Carlos Manson lives.' "'It's kind of unwieldy,' I said. "'I mean, what do people call you?' "'A longer hiss, a sigh, perhaps, of exasperation. "'It's just me and you here. No need to differentiate.' "'Differentiate.' The word was wrong for him, and the way he enunciated it, every syllable clean and clear, made me wonder if he was faking the accent. Paranoia nibbled at my sense of well-being.' I had to do a flutter kick to counter a sideways drift. It ain't really my name, he said. Not yet. I ain't even here yet. Not all the way here. I had a rosy, flickery comeback of my rush. My eyes closed and my body rode an inch higher in the water. I didn't care what he was saying. Once the feeling faded, my paranoia resurfaced. Do I know you? I asked. You might think you do. Okay, who do I think you are? No response. The poison gas clouds thinned, and for a second or two I could see faint stars behind. How come you wanted to be famous, he asked. Better drugs, silver syringes, stuff like that. Why'd you pick the name Queen Mother? The question annoyed me, but I was too relaxed to give him attitude. Some fuck journalist said I was like becoming the Queen Mother of post-punk, the new Chrissy Hind. It caught on that was back in the day. Yeah, they don't call me that anymore. A sudden suspicion caused another sideways drift. You a fucking writer, man? I'm a fan. I like your sound. My freak detector began to emit a steady beeping. Anxious, I looked at the house. Yeah, you're right. I could do your ass, he said. I could snuff you out by closing my hand. But it's not my time. Soon, though. "'You better leave,' I said. "'No need. It's just you and me. "'Nobody's going to be joining us. "'They too scared of you.' "'I could scream. Then there'd be a need.' "'It wasn't a scream he let out then. "'It was a roar that didn't sound as if lungs, "'human or otherwise, were involved. "'Like the chair was an opening "'into a noisy neighborhood in hell. "'For as long as it lasted, 15 or 20 seconds, "'I was fascinated. "'I thought I might see through the shadow "'to a place of fire and iron and pain.' It shut down as if sheared away by the closing of a door. No one in the house appeared to have heard. I like that one of yours goes, you know... He sang in an off-key but sweet tenor that gave no sign of having been damaged by the roar. Man's best friend got pretty little tits and a big rear end. Oh, that's my old stuff. Way old. Juvenile political bullshit. Bullshit. I considered a sprint toward the shallow end, scramble up the steps, a run. With all the lighting guys smack in me, I thought it was probably not worth the effort. Those days are gone. People write essays on the validity of those days. I like the oldies. I pushed out toward the middle of the pool. He wanted to hurt me, he'd have to get his linen jacket wet. In L.A., that might be a deal-breaker for a killer. I like that other one, too. Call yourself a man, again he sang. With your store-bought muscles and your inch-deep tin. Fear was making it impossible to float, and I treaded water. I gave light conversation a try. So how come you chose your name? You know, that's a pretty extreme name. Didn't have no choice. It was handed me, just like with you. You'll understand, Julie. He sneered the name, turned it into a trinket, a plastic bauble. You can write a song about it, About me. Even stoned, I realized this implied my survival. Of course he might be kidding. What's it gonna be about this song? It'll come to you. The shoe reappeared, bobbed up and down in midair as if he was keeping time. The only new songs I like of yours, those Montana songs. Those are cool. You from Montana, right? Uh huh. Browning That's a fucked up town. Mean drunk Indians? Five, six, seven bars in a row on that street runs along the railroad tracks. What's that street called? You been to Browning? No, I wouldn't want to go anywhere near a place like that. Why'd you leave? I got into trouble. What kind? I hesitated, uncertain of my role, of my victim's rights. I got pregnant. My dad threw me out. And then you went to New York. You joined a band. Yeah. What happened to the baby? "'Eat a shit sandwich,' I said. "'It's okay, I know. I know where your little boy is. "'You knew it was a boy, didn't you? "'They told you that much before they took it away.' "'I wasn't close to crying. I was still too stoned to feel much, "'but recalling that the kid was somewhere produced the concept of tears, "'the knowledge that they might be possible. "'Little fella's named David,' he said. "'Lives in Trumansburg, New York.' "'I was too busy staying afloat to respond, splashing and kicking, "'but I almost believed he knew what he was saying.' Little David. In Trumansburg. Carlos Manson lives. The guy was a mutation. Actually, I'm lying, he said. He is in Trumansburg for real. But he's dead. The poor kid had an enlarged heart. He died playing baseball, just keeled on over, only nine years old. I screamed at him to shut up, floundering in the pool. My head went under, and I surfaced with chlorine stinging my nose, less concerned with what he'd told me than with the water I'd swallowed. "'Tonight's the night, you know,' he said. "'I moved toward the far side of the pool, planning my escape. "'It was a stupid plan. "'Yeah, so what's that mean? "'Means it's almost my time. "'You want to explain that? "'Cause I'm sick of you fucking with my head.' "'It's self-explanatory.' "'A chuckle. "'The Queen Mother. "'Man, I was right about you. "'Yes, I was. "'Hey, man, what the fuck do you want? "'You want the dope? "'You want some money?' "'You've had a shitty life,' he said. I know all about it. The abortions, bad love, all those career move blowjobs, the dope. You could have got to the top another way, but you wanted to crawl through the sewer. That makes you perfect for me. You're going to write me a great song. Whatever. Why don't you just, yeah, all right, I love it. Whatever. That's a great title. Promise me you'll call it whatever. Whatever, I said. Because both of us, man, that's our motto. Whatever. That says it all about us. Our souls are all scarred, like furniture in a cheap motel, know what I'm saying? There was a silence during which the distant hum of LA made itself known. Music from a house higher on the hill. Dance shit. I asked again what he wanted from me, what I had to do. I want you to acknowledge me, he said, to bear witness. I acknowledge you, okay? Now why don't you get the fuck gone? You don't want to do this. Get out of the pool. I touched the tiles on the opposite side. Inside the house, movement had all but ceased. People sprawled, reclined. "'Just get out,' he said, a note of irritation in his worn-down voice. "'Do it now.' My foot slipped on the gutter, but I made it up and sat on the edge, shivering. "'Stand,' he said. I slipped again, then stood hugging myself. Adrenaline and cold were fucking up my high. I had a giddy thought, wondering if he was going to kill me, would he let me go back inside and do up first? "'Come to me,' he said. "'Stand before me.' Time to run, but either I didn't care enough or else I wanted to bear witness. I walked around the end of the pool, past the stucco wall, and stopped about a dozen feet away from the cabana chair. I felt suddenly diminished, as if the stars were camera flashes. The hill was a giant with a furrowed brow, and behind the sky was a restless audience. The rest of my fear broke through. "'Who are you?' I shouted. "'What do you want?' "'Come closer.' "'Barely more than a whisper. "'Still hugging myself, I tottered a few feet toward him. "'Stop.' "'The shoe vanished, and when his voice came again, "'it was nearly inaudible. "'Now you can acknowledge me. "'What do you want me to say?' "'I smelled a hint of something sweet. "'Chewing gum sweetness, a thread of it braided into the other smells.' Like Carlos Manson lives, was wearing juicy fruit cologne. I acknowledge you, I said shakily. That do it for you? A gurgling from the pool. Otherwise, silence. I peered at the dark concavity of the chair and saw no sign of him. No shoe? No white linen jacket? I couldn't be sure, but I thought the chair was empty. Hey, I said tentatively. I noticed an edge of the cushion on which he'd been sitting. My eyes had left the chair while I was scrambling out of the pool, and I almost wanted to believe that he'd taken the opportunity to sneak away, to hide behind the chair, and that he was waiting for me to think he was gone before making his play. But he was gone. I could feel his absence on my skin, a lack of pressure, a slight increase in warmth. I said, "'Hey!' again, and was tempted to approach the chair, but upon review I beat it toward the house." I paused at the edge of the pool area, checking to see if he had rematerialized. I attempted to dismiss the event. Fanboy mutant terrorizes Queen Mother. Carlos Manson lives. What the fuck was that? A warp Chicano revenge fantasy? Why not? It was more reasonable than anything else I could imagine. Trouble was, it just didn't work for me. I started to shiver again, thinking I had been granted a reprieve. Pardoned in exchange for a song. I walked back into the party without gathering my clothes, squatted beside the coffee table and dipped into the lighting guy's dope. There were questions. I ignored them and concentrated on loading my nose. Everyone watched me. Jessie, who used to fuck my road manager, then became a friend and now was just around, brought a blanket and draped it over my shoulders. The falseness of her solicitude irritated me, but I liked being warm. I grew extremely naughty, bitter powder on my lips, a bitter drain from my nostrils. Eventually clothes were offered. I was dressed, food was suggested. Eric Something, his arm around me to support, to grope, announced that a Johnny Rockets was not far. Jessie went on ahead with some guys in a van, saying she'd order me some cheese fries, a strawberry shake. I was to follow in the limo with Eric Something. The lighting guy was vastly relieved to see us go. Hey, this was good, huh? He said. Good dope, good people. I declined comment. The limo ride was all bouncing, sugary lights behind my closed eyes. When I opened them, I saw Johnny Rockets glowing like a jukebox cathedral, like a nuclear gay bar. Nobody we knew was inside. No Jesse, no Van Guys. We climbed out and leaned against the limo, standing on the sidewalk in front. In the glare sleeting from the restaurant windows, Eric Something's pores looked like blackheads. His lips had a red, rubbery shine. He was so ugly in his fashionable beauty, I reconsidered doing him. The people inside Johnny Rockets moved jerkily, stiffly, like bad animation. I imagined myself hunting through the records of all the dead Davids in upstate New York. I imagined succeeding in my hunt. Eric Something lifted his face to the corrupted sky as if addressing a deity, then cut his eyes toward me. "'Wonder where they are?' I shook my head. "'They must have stopped somewhere,' Eric Something said, "'perhaps for gas.' Uh "'Uh-huh.' I caught a whiff of juicy fruit among the automotive smells of the street. Alerted, I glanced around. In the middle of the parking lot for Johnny Rockets, two old men, bearded and disheveled, appeared to be slapping each other on the shoulders. They were, I realized, fighting. At the back of the lot, tucked into a corner, was the van. The people in the front seats were visible as dark smudges behind the glass. On the wall of the adjoining building, behind and above the roof of the van, "'Drippy blue letters. three words. "'My eyes were so messed up I couldn't make them out, "'but I could guess what the letters spelled. "'The people in the van weren't moving. "'Not at all, sitting absolutely still as if hoping not to be seen. "'The person in the passenger seat was about the same size as Jesse. "'I may have made a noise, because Eric something asked if I was all right. "'Not really,' I told him. "'Would you like to go on in?' "'I thought about what was possible.' was impossible. They both had the same incomprehensible value. I felt afraid again and wondered what was in store for me, but fear wasn't strong enough to be much of a motive. I should, I told myself, probably write that song. The old men stopped fighting and stood bent over, hands on their knees, gasping. The people in the van still hadn't moved. In my head I heard chords, a whining melody like a red-hot wire being drawn out and twisted. Words, too. "'though not the ones the man might have wanted me to write. "'You come on like a genius, like an evil without end, "'a two-legged desolation who's just hoping to make friends "'and pretends to know the secret upon which everything depends, whatever. "'If it works for you, that's fine, whatever.' "'gets you happy, kills you after a while, whatever. "'It wouldn't be a huge surprise "'if the devil was the answer to God's infinite surmise, "'if all I ever wanted was a man with empty eyes, "'if everything you threaten is a love note in disguise, "'so whatever. "'It needed work, but I'd had worse beginnings. "'There they are. What the hell are they doing?' "'Eric something had spotted the van. "'I'll go see, shall I?' I shrugged and said, sure. He started into the lot, but detoured and kneeled by the front tire of the shiny red car parked in front of the limo. My God! He patted the tire, gave a disgusted snort, and looked back at me. Do you believe this? Some assholes running retreads on a new Ferrari. No sign of movement inside the van. I remembered a time when Jesse and I were friends, drunk as hell and stoned, picking up guys at an arcade in Huntington Beach and fucking them out on the sand. Wild girls. Wild girls. Then the dope came back on me and I was floating again. The man had been right. Whoever he was, whatever, even if he didn't exist, I was perfect for him. He couldn't make that shit up, I said.
1: There you go, Lucius. Thank you so much again. And don't forget, narrated by Christy Yant, which is a fantastic narrator. Christy, thank you so much. I'll put a link onto Christy's site. Do pop over there. You will find her on Twitter as well. So next up is the serial, The Barons, part one by F. Paul Wilson. And... The nice thing and unusual thing about this story is it's set exactly in one of Larry Santuru's stories. You know, it's actually set in that place. Well, I can't remember where it is, but you'll know if you remember Larry's story about the the sand, the, the sand that had teeth. It's set in exactly the same place as that. So do listen out for that. I'll give you a little heads up about F. Paul Wilson. Wikipedia says Francis Paul Wilson was born in 1946 in Jersey City, an American author, primarily in science fiction and horror genres. His debut novel was Healer in 1976. Wilson also is a part-time practicing family physician. He made his first sale in 1972. Analogue. While still in the medical school, graduating in 1973. And he continued to write science fiction throughout the 70s. In 1981, he ventured into the horror genre with the international bestseller, The Keep. I remember that when it came out as well. And it was actually that keep that helped define the, the field of the horror genre throughout the rest of the decade. In the 1990s, he became the true genre hopper, moving from science fiction to horror to medical thrillers, then branching out into interactive scriptwriting for Disney Interactive and other multimedia companies. I'll give you a little heads up. He's got some books out. He's He's got two Jack secret histories for young adults. The second novel's out there now. The first one's out as well. He's had Ground Zero, a Repairman Jack novel. Reborn, F. Paul Wilson, By the Sword... The Touch, and Aftershock, and other 19 oddities. I'll put a link on now, F. Paul. It's an intense site there. There's lots going on there, so it's a great site if you want to kind of submerge yourself in F. Paul Wilson's work. Pop over there. It is narrated by Amy H. Sturgis. <laughs> Amy, how long have I had this story sitting on my hard disk? I am so sorry. It is finally seeing the light of day. It's mentioned in the intro that F. Paul Wilson wrote this as a homage to H.P. Lovecraft. And it was Amy saying that in August, August the 20th, it'll be H.P. Lovecraft's 120th birthday. So fitting nicely with that, that's why we're running this story now. Isn't it right, Amy? <laughs> so I'll put a link on the Amy's site. Everyone knows him, but do go over there and say hello. So Starship Sova and her Oral Delights is very proud to present.
5: The Barons by F. Paul Wilson Introduction The Barons is my official tribute to H.P. Lovecraft. Donald A. Walheim is to blame. He introduced me to H.P.L. in his anthology, The Macabre Reader, wherein the thing on the doorstep grabbed me by the throat and wouldn't let go. I was dragged into the story by the opening line. It is true I have sent six bullets through the head of my best friend, and yet I hope to show by this statement that I am not his murderer. Captivated by the setting, witch-cursed, legend-haunted Arkham, whose huddled, sagging gambrel roofs and crumbling Georgian balustrades brood out the centuries beside the darkly muttering Miskatonic blown away by the dense prose that tossed off words like Eldritch, and Feater, and Cyclopean, and Nacreous, that spoke of poets who die screaming in madhouses, that casually mention strange, forbidden books and towns like Innsmouth, where even Archimites fear to go, as if I should be familiar with them. But it was the heart of the tale that lingered in my mind long after I'd finished it, the concept of another reality impinging on ours, knowledge of which could drive you stark, raving mad, a dimension of perverse logic and bizarre geometry, full of godlike creatures with unpronounceable names, aloof and yet decidedly inimical. My thirteen-year-old world did not seem quite so safe and sane. My reality seemed a tad less real. The thing on the doorstep served as my introduction to H.P.L.'s cosmic horror, which became the template for the otherness in my own fiction. So here's my homage to H.P. Lovecraft. I purposefully avoided rereading any of his fiction before writing The Barons. I wasn't out to do a slavish pastiche. I wanted to capture the Lovecraft Gestalt as I remembered it. The Jersey Pine Barons, by the way, are real, a truly Lovecraftian setting. All the piney history and lore in the story are true. Every locale, except Razorback Hill, is real. The style is mine, but the cosmic horror is Lovecraft's. The following year, it wound up as a finalist for the World Fantasy Award for Best Novella. Despite the acclaim, The Barrens is nothing like the thing on the doorstep. That's the real thing. Read it or reread it when you get a chance. THE BARONS by F. PAUL WILSON 1. IN SEARCH OF A DEVIL I shot my answering machine today, took out the old 12-gauge my father left me, and blew it to pieces. A silly, futile gesture, I know. But it illustrates my present state of mind, I think. And it felt good. If not for an answering machine, my life would be completely different now. I would have missed Jonathan Creighton's call. I'd be less wise, but far, far happier. And I'd still have some semblance of order and meaning in my life. He left an innocent enough message. The office of Kathleen McKelston and Associates. Sounds like big business. How's it going, Mac? This is John Creighton calling. I'm going to be in the area later this week, and I'd like to see you lunch or dinner, whatever's better. Give me a buzz. And he left a number with a 212 area code. So simple, so forthright, giving no hint of where it would lead. You work your way through life, day by day, learning how to play the game, carving out your niche, making a place for yourself. You have some good luck, some bad luck, sometimes you make your own luck, and along the way you begin to think that you've figured out some of the answers. Not all of them, of course but enough to make you feel that you've learned something, that you've got a handle on life and just might be able to get a decent ride out of it. You start to think you're in control. Then, along comes someone like Jonathan Creighton, and he smashes everything. Not just your plans, your hopes, your dreams, but everything, up to and including your sense of what is real and what is not. I'd heard nothing from or about him since college, and had thought of him only occasionally, until that day in early August when he called my office. Intrigued, I returned his call and set a date for lunch. That was my first mistake. If I'd had the slightest inkling of where that simple lunch with an old college lover would lead, I'd have slammed down the phone and fled to Europe or the Orient, anywhere where Jonathan Creighton wasn't. We'd met at a freshman mixer at Rutgers University. Maybe we each picked up subliminal cues—we called them vibes in those days—that told us we shared a rural upbringing. We didn't dress like it, act like it, or feel like it, but we were a couple of Jersey hicks. I came from the Pemberton area. John came from another rural zone, but in North Jersey, near a place called Gilead. Despite that link, we were polar opposites in most other ways. I'm still amazed we hit it off. I was career-oriented, while John was... Well, he was a flake. He earned the name Crazy Creighton and lived up to it every day. He never stayed with one thing long enough to allow anyone to pin him down. Always on to the next new thing before the crowd had turned into it. Always into the exotic and esoteric. Looking for the truth, he'd say. And as so often happens with people who are incompatible in so many ways... We found each other irresistible and fell madly in love. Sophomore year, we found an apartment off campus and moved in together. It was my first affair, and not at all a tranquil one. I read the strange books he'd find, and I kept up with his strange hours, but I put my foot down when it came to the Pickman prints. There was something deeply disturbing about those paintings that went beyond their gruesome subject matter. John didn't fight me on it. He just smiled, sadly, in his condescending way, as if disappointed that I had missed the point, and rolled them up and put them away. The thing that kept us together, at least for the year we were together, was our devotion to personal autonomy. We spent weeks of nights talking about how we had to take complete control of our own lives and brainstorming how we were going to go about it. It seems so silly now, but that was the 60s and we really discussed those sorts of things back then. We lasted sophomore year, and then we fell apart. It might have gone on longer if Creighton hadn't gotten in with the druggies. That was the path toward loss of all autonomy as far as I was concerned. But Creighton said you can't be free until you know what's real, and if drugs might reveal the truth, he had to try them, which was hippie bullshit as far as I was concerned. After that, we rarely ran into each other. He wound up living alone, off campus in his senior year. Somehow he managed to graduate with a degree in anthropology, and that was the last I'd heard of him. But that doesn't mean he hadn't left his mark. I suppose I'm what you might call a feminist. I don't belong to now, and I don't march in the streets, but I don't let anyone leave footprints on my back simply because I'm a woman. I believe in myself, and I guess I owe some of that to Jonathan Creighton. He always treated me as an equal. He never made an issue of it. It was simply implicit in his attitude that I was intelligent, competent, worthy of respect, able to stand on my own. It helped shape me, and I'll always revere him for that. Lunch. I chose Rosario's on the Point Pleasant Beach side of the Manasquin Inlet, not so much for its food as for the view. Creighton was late, and that didn't terribly surprise me. I didn't mind. I sipped a Chablis spritzer and watched the party boats roll in from their half-day runs of bottom fishing. Then a voice with echoes of familiarity broke through my thoughts. Well, Mac, I see you haven't changed much. I turned and was shocked at what I saw. I barely recognized Creighton. He'd always been thin to the point of emaciation. Could the plump bearded almost cherubic figure standing before me now be john is that you the one and only he said and spread his arms we embraced briefly then took our seats in a booth by the window as he squeezed into the far side of the table he called the waitress over and pointed to my glass two lights for me and another of those for her At first glance, I'd thought that Creighton's extra poundage made him look healthy for the first time in his life. His hair was still thick and dark brown, but despite his round, rosy cheeks, his eyes were sunken and too bright. He seemed jovial, but I sensed a grim undertone. I wondered if he was still into drugs. Almost a quarter century since we were together, he said. Hard to believe it's been that long. The years look as if they've been kind to you. As far as looks go, I suppose that's true. I don't dye my hair, so there's a little gray tucked in with the red. But I've always had a young face. I don't wear makeup. With my high coloring and freckles, I don't need it. And you. Which wasn't actually true. His open shirt collar was frayed and looked as if this might be the third time he'd worn it since it was last washed. His tweed sport coat was worn at the elbows, and a good two sizes too small for him. We spent the drinks, appetizers, and most of the entrees catching up on each other's lives. I told him about my small accounting firm, my marriage, my recent divorce. No children? I shook my head. The marriage had gone sour. The divorce had been a nightmare. I wanted off the subject. But enough about me, I said. What have you been up to? Would you believe clinical psychology? No, I said, too shocked to lie. I wouldn't. The Jonathan Creighton I'd known had been so eccentric, so out of step, so self-absorbed, I couldn't imagine him as a psychotherapist. Jonathan Creighton helping other people get their lives together? It was almost laughable. He was the one laughing, however, good-naturedly, too. Yeah, it is hard to believe. But I went on to get a master's and then a Ph.D. Actually went into practice. His voice trailed off. You're using the past tense, I said. Right. It didn't work out. The practice never got off the ground. But the problem was really within myself. I was using a form of reality therapy, but it never worked as it should. And finally I realized why. I don't know really know what reality is. Nobody does. This had an all-too-familiar ring to it. I tried to lighten things up before they got too heavy. Didn't someone once say that reality is what trips you up whenever you walk around with your eyes closed? Creighton's smile showed a touch of the old condescension that so infuriated some people. Yes, I suppose someone would say something like that. Anyway, I decided to go off and see if I could find out what reality really was. Did a lot of traveling. Wound up in a place called Miskatonic University. Ever heard of it? In Massachusetts, isn't it? That's the one. In a small town called Arkham. I hooked up with the anthropology department there. That was my undergraduate major, after all. But now I've left academe to write a book. A book? This was beginning to sound like a pretty disjointed life, but that shouldn't have surprised me. What a deal, he said, his eyes sparkling. I've got grants from Rutgers, Princeton, the American Folklore Society, the New Jersey Historical Society, and half a dozen others, just to write a book. What's it about? The origins of folktales. I'm going to select a few and trace them back to their roots. That's where you come in. Oh? I'm going to devote a significant chapter to the Jersey Devil. There have been whole books written about the Jersey Devil. Why don't you... I want real sources for this, Mac. Primary all the way. Nothing secondhand. This is going to be definitive. What can I do for you? You're a piney, aren't you? Resentment flashed through me. Even though people nowadays describe themselves as piney with a certain amount of pride and I'd even seen bumper stickers touting piney power. Some of us still couldn't help bristling when an outsider said it. When I was a kid, it was always used as a pejorative, like clam digger here on the coast, fighting words. Officially, it referred to the multi-generational natives of the great pine bearings that ran south from Route 70 all the way down to the lower end of the state. I've always hated the term. To me, it was the equivalent of calling someone a redneck which, to be honest, wasn't so far from the truth. The true pineys are poor rural folk, often working truck farms and doing menial labor in the berry fields and cranberry bogs. A lot of them do indeed have red necks. Many are uneducated, or at best, undereducated. Those who can afford wheels drive the prototypical battered pickup with the gun rack in the rear window. They even speak with an accent that sounds southern their Jersey hillbillies, country bumpkins in the very heart of the industrial Northeast, anachronisms, pineys. Who told you that? I said as levelly as I could. You did, back in school. Did I? It shook me to see how far I'd traveled from my roots. As a scared, naive, self-deprecating frosh at Rutgers, I probably had indeed referred to myself as a piney. Now, I never mentioned the word, not in reference to myself or anyone else. I was a college-educated woman. I was a respected professional who spoke with a colorless northeast accent. No one in his right mind would consider me a piney. Well, that was just a gag, I said. My family roots are back in the Pine Barrens. But I am by no stretch of the imagination a piney, so I doubt I can help you. Oh, but you can. The McKelston name is big in the barrens. Everybody knows it. You've got plenty of relatives there. Really? How do you know? Suddenly he looked sheepish. Because I've been into the barrens a few times now. No one will open up to me. I'm an outsider. They don't trust me. Instead of answering my questions, they play games with me. They say they don't know what I'm talking about, but they know someone who might. Then they send me driving in circles. I was lost out there for two solid days last month. And believe me, I was getting scared. I thought I'd never find my way out. You wouldn't be the first. Plenty of people, many of them experienced hunters, have gone into the Barrens and never been seen again. You'd better stay out. His hand darted across the table and clutched mine. You've got to help me, Kathy. My whole future hinges on this. I was shocked. He'd always called me Mac. Even in bed, back in our college days, he'd never called me Kathy. Gently, I pulled my hand free, saying, Come on, John. He leaned back and stared out the window at the circling gulls. If I do this right, do something really definitive, it may get me back into Miskatonic, where I can finish my doctoral thesis. I was immediately suspicious. I thought you said you left Miskatonic, John. Why can't you get back in without it? Irregularities, he said, still not looking at me. The old farts in the antiquities department didn't like where my research was leading me. This reality business? Yes. They told you that. Now he looked at me. Not in so many words, but I could tell. He leaned forward. His eyes were brighter than ever. They've got books and manuscripts locked in huge safes there. One of the kind volumes from times most scholars think of as prehistory. I managed to get a pass, a forgery, that got me into the vaults. It's... Incredible, what they have there, Mac. Incredible. I've got to get back there. Will you help me? His intensity was startling and tantalizing. What would I have to do? Just accompany me into the Pine Barrens, just for a few trips. If I can use you as a reference, I know they'll talk to me about the Jersey Devil. After that, I can take it on my own. All I need is some straight answers from these people, and I'll have my primary sources. I may be able to track a folk myth to its very roots. I'll give you credit in the book. I'll pay you anything, Mac. Just don't leave me twisting in the wind. He was positively frantic by the time he finished speaking. Easy, John, easy. Let me think. Tax season was over, and I had a loose schedule for the summer. And even if I was looking ahead to a tight schedule, so what? Frankly, the job wasn't anywhere near as satisfying as it once had been. The challenge of overcoming the business community's prejudice and doubts about a woman accountant. The thrill of building a string of clients. That was all over. Everything was mostly routine now. Plus, I no longer had a husband. No children to usher toward adulthood. I had to admit that my life was pretty empty at that moment. And so was I. Why not take a little time to inspect my roots and help crazy Creighton put his life on track, if such a thing was possible? In the bargain, maybe I could gain a little perspective on my own life. All right, John, I said. I'll do it. Creighton's eyes lit with true pleasure, a glow distinct from the feverish intensity since he'd sat down. He thrust both his hands toward me. I could kiss you, Mac. I can't tell you how much this means to me. You have no idea how important this is. He was right about that. No idea at all. Two, the Pine Barrens. Two days later, we were ready to make our first foray into the woods. Creighton was wearing a safari jacket when he picked me up in a slightly battered four-wheel-drive Jeep Wrangler. "'This isn't Africa we're headed for,' I told him. "'I know. I like the pockets. They hold all sorts of things.' I glanced in the rear compartment. He was surprisingly well-equipped. I noticed a water cooler, a food chest, backpacks, and what looked like sleeping bags. I hoped he wasn't harboring any romantic ideas, i just split from one man, and I wasn't looking for another, especially not Jonathan Creighton. I promised to help you look around. I didn't say anything about camping out. He laughed. I'm with you. Holiday Inn is my idea of roughing it. I was never a Boy Scout. But I do believe in being prepared. I've already been lost once in there. And we can do without that happening again. Got a compass? He nodded. "'And maps. Even have a sextant.' "'You actually know how to use one?' "'I learned.' "'I dimly remember being bothered then by his having a sextant, "'and not being quite sure why. "'Before I could say anything else, he tossed me the keys. "'You're the piney. You drive.' "'Still Mr. Macho, I see.' "'He laughed. I drove. "'It's easy to get into the Pine Barrens from Northern Ocean County.' You just get on Route 70 and head west, about halfway between the Atlantic Ocean and Philadelphia, say, near a place known as Ong's Hat. You turn left and wave bye-bye to the 20th century and civilization as you know it. How do I describe the Pine Barrens to someone who's never been through them? First of all, it's big. You have to fly over it in a small plane to appreciate just how big. It runs through seven counties, takes up one-fourth of the state. But since Jersey's not a big state, that doesn't tell the story. How does 2,000 square miles sound? Or a million acres? Almost the size of Yosemite National Park. Does that give you an idea of its vastness? How do I describe what a wilderness this is? Maps will give you a clue. Look at a road map of New Jersey. If you don't happen to have one handy... Imagine an oblong platter of spaghetti. Now imagine what it looks like after someone's devoured most of the spaghetti out of the middle of the lower half, leaving only a few strands crossing the exposed plate. Same thing with a population density map, a big, gaping hole in the southern half where the Pine Barren sits. New Jersey is the most densely populated state in the U.S., averaging a 1,000 bodies per square mile but the New York City suburbs in North Jersey team with 40,000 per square mile. After you account for the crowds along the coast and in the cities and towns along the Western Interstate Corridor, there aren't too many people left over when you get to the Pine Barrens. I've heard of an area of over 100,000 acres. That's in the neighborhood of 160 square miles in the South Central Barrens with 21 known inhabitants. 21. One human being per eight square miles in an area that lies on the route between Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and D.C. Even when you take a turn off one of the state or federal roads that cut through the Barrens, you feel the isolation almost immediately. The 40-foot scrub pines close in behind you, and quietly, but oh so effectively, cut you off from the rest of the world. I'll bet there are people who've lived a ripe old ages in the Barrens who have never seen a paved road. Conversely, there are no complete topographical maps of the Barrens, because there are vast areas that no human eyes have ever seen. Are you getting the picture? Where do we start? Creighton asked as we crawled past the retirement villages along Route 70. This had been an empty stretch of road when I was a kid. Now it was Wrinkle City. We start at the capital. Trenton? I don't want to go to Trenton. Not the state capital. The capital of the Pines. Used to be called Shamong Station. Now it's known as Chatsworth. He pulled out his map and squinted through the index. Oh, right. I see it. Right smack in the middle of the Barrens. How big is it? A veritable piny megalopolis, my friend. Three hundred souls. Creighton smiled, and for a second or two he seemed almost... innocent. Think we can get there before rush hour? 3. Jasper Mulliner I stuck to the main roads, taking 70 to 72 to 563, and we were there in no time. You'll see something here you won't see in any place else in the Barrens, I said as I drove down Chatsworth's Main Street. Electricity? Crichton said. He didn't look up from the clutter of maps on his lap. He'd been following our progress on paper, mile by mile. No. Lawns. Years ago, a number of families decided they wanted grass in their front yards. There's no topsoil to speak of out here. The ground's mostly sand. So they trucked in loads of topsoil and seeded themselves some lawns. Now they've got to cut them. I drove past the general store and its three gas pumps out on the sidewalk. Esso, Creighton said, staring at the sign over the pumps. That says it all, doesn't it? That it do. We continued on until we came to a sandy lot occupied by a single trailer. No lawn here. Who's this? Creighton said, folding up his maps as I hopped out of the Wrangler. An old friend of the family. This was Jasper Mulliner's place. He was some sort of an uncle, on my mother's side, I think. But distant blood relationships are nothing special in the Barrens, an awful lot of people are related in one way or another. Some said he was a descendant of the notorious bandit of the Pines, Joseph Mulliner. Jasper had never confirmed that, but he'd never denied it either. I knocked on the door, wondering who would answer. I wasn't even sure Jasper was still alive. But when the door opened, I immediately recognized the grizzled old head that poked through the opening. You're not selling anything, are you? He said. Nothing, Mr. Mulliner, I said. I'm Kathleen McKelston. I don't know if you remember me, but... His eyes lit as his face broke into a toothless grin. Danny's girl. The one who got the college scholarship. Sure, I remember you. Come on in. Jasper was wearing khaki shorts, a sleeveless orange t-shirt, and duck boots. No socks. His white hair was neatly combed, and he was freshly shaved. He'd been a salt hay farmer in his younger days, and his hands were still calloused from it. He'd moved on to overseeing a cranberry bog in his later years. His skin was a weathered brown and looked tougher than saddle leather. The inside of the trailer reminded me more of a low-ceilinged freight car than a home, but it was clean. The presence of the television set told me he had electricity, but I saw no phone sign or running water. I introduced him to Creighton, and we settled onto a three legged stool and a pair of ladder back chairs, as I spent the better part of half an hour telling him about my life since leaving the barons, and answering questions about my mother and how she was doing since my father died. Then he went into a soliloquy about what a great man my father was. I let him run on, pretending to be listening, but turning my mind to other things. Not because I disagreed with him, but because it had been barely a year since Dad had dropped dead, and I was still hurting. Dad had not been your typical piney. Although he loved the barons as much as anyone else who grew up there, he'd known there was a bigger, though not necessarily better, life beyond them. That bigger world didn't interest him in the least, but just because he was content with where he was didn't mean that I'd be. He wanted to allow his only child a choice. He knew I'd need a decent education if that choice was to be meaningful. And to provide that education for me, he did what few pineys like to do. He took a steady job. That's not to say that pineys are afraid of hard work. Far from it. They'll break their backs at any job they're doing. It's simply that they don't like to be tied down to the same job, day after day, month after month. Most of them have grown up flowing with the cycle of the barrens. Spring is for gathering sphagnum moss to sell to the florists and nurseries. In June and July, they work the blueberry and huckleberry fields. In the fall, they move into the bogs for the cranberry harvest, and in the cold of winter, they cut cordwood or cut holly and mistletoe or go pine-balling, collecting pine cones to sell. None of this is easy work, but it's not the same work, and that's what matters. The piney attitude toward jobs is the most laid-back you'll ever encounter. That's because they're in such close harmony with their surroundings. They know that with all the pure water all around them and flowing beneath their feet, they'll never go thirsty. With all the wild vegetation around them, they'll never lack for fruit and vegetables. And whenever the meat supply gets low, they pick up a rifle and head into the brush for squirrel, rabbit, or venison, whatever the season. When I neared 14, my father bit the bullet and moved us close to Pemberton, where he took a job with a well-drilling crew. It was steady work, with benefits, and I got to go to Pemberton High. He pushed me to take my schoolwork seriously, and I did. My grades, coupled with my gender and low socioeconomic status, earned me a full ride, room, board, and tuition, at Rutgers. As soon as that was settled, he was ready to move back into the Barrens. But my mother had become used to the conveniences and amenities of town living. She wanted to stay in Pemberton. So they stayed. I still can't help but wonder whether Dad might have lived longer if he'd moved back into the woods. I've never mentioned that to my mother, of course. When Jasper paused, I jumped in. My friend John's doing a book, and he's devoting a chapter to the Jersey Devil. Is that so? Jasper said. And you brought him to me, did you? Well... Dad always told me there weren't many folks in the pines you don't know, and not much that went on that you didn't know about. The old man beamed and did what many pineys do. He repeated a phrase three times. Did he now? Did he now? Did he really now? Ain't that something? I do believe that calls for a little jack. As Jasper turned and reached into his cupboard, Creighton threw me a questioning look. Apple Jack, I told him. He smiled. Ah, Jersey lightning. Jasper turned back with three glasses and a brown quart jug. With a practiced hand, he poured two fingers worth into each and handed them to us. The tumblers were smudged and maybe a little crusty, but I wasn't worried about germs. There's never been a germ that could stand up to straight Jack from Jasper Mulliner's still. I remember siphoning some off from my father's jug and sneaking off into the brush at night to meet a couple of my girlfriends from high school. And we'd sit around and sing and get plastered. I could tell by the way the vapor singed my nasal membranes that this was from a potent batch. I neglected to tell Creighton to go slow. As I took a respectful sip, he tossed his off. I watched him wince as he swallowed, saw his face grow red, and his eyes begin to water. Whoa, he said hoarsely. You could etch glass with that stuff. He caught Jasper looking at him sideways and held out his glass. But delicious. Could I have just a drop more? Help yourself, Jasper said, pouring him another couple of fingers. "Plenty more where this came from, but down it's slow. This here's sippin' whiskey. You go puttin' too much of it down like that and you'll get apple palsy. Slow and leisurely does it when you're drinkin' Gus Sui's best. This isn't yours, I said. "Naw, no, I stopped that long time ago. Too much trouble and getting too civilized round here. Besides, Gus's Jack is as good as mine ever was. Maybe better. He set the jug down on the floor between us. About that Jersey Devil, I said, prompting him before he got off on another tangent. Right, the old devil. He used to be known as the Leeds Devil. I'm sure you've heard various versions of the story, but I'll tell you the real one. That old devil's been around a spell better than two and a half centuries. All started back around 1730 or so. That was when Mrs. Leeds of Estelleville found herself in the family way for the 13th time. Now, she was so fed up and angry about this that she cried out, I hope this time it's the devil. Well, now, someone must have been listening that night because she got her wish. When that 13th baby was born, it was an ugly-faced thing. Born with teeth like no one ever seen before, and it had a curly, sharp, pointed tail and leathery wings like a bat. It bit its mother and flew out through the window. It grew up out in the pine wilds, stealing and eating chickens and small piglets at first, then graduating to cows, children, even growed men. All they ever found of its victims was their bones, and they was chipped and nicked by powerful, sharp teeth. Some say it's dead now. Some say it'll never die. Every so often, someone says he shot and killed it, but most folks think it can't be killed. It gets blamed for every missing chicken and every pig or cow that wanders off. And so, after a while, you think it's just an old piney folktale. But it's out there. It's out there. It's surely out there. Have you ever seen it? Creighton asked. He was sipping his jack with respect this time around. Saw a shadow. It was up on Apple Pie Hill, up at the top, in the days before they put up the fire tower. Before you was born, Kathleen, I'd been out doing some summer hunting, tracking a big old stag. You know what a climb Apple Pie is, don't ya? I nodded. Sure do. It didn't look like much of a hill. No cliffs or precipices, just a slow incline that seemed to go on forever. You didn't have to do much more than walk to get to the top. But you were bushed when you finally reached it. Anyways... I was about three quarters the way up when it got too dark to do any more tracking. Well, I was tired and it was a warm summer night, so as I just settled down on the pine needles and decided I'd spend the night. I had some jerky and some pone and my jug. He pointed to the floor. Just like that one. You two be sure to help yourselves, hear me? I'm fine, I said. I saw Creighton reach for the jug. He always could handle a lot. I was already feeling my two sips. It was getting warmer in here by the minute. "'Anyways,' Jasper went on, "'I was sitting there chewing and sipping when I saw some pine lights.'" Creighton started in mid-pour and spilled some applejack over his hand. He was suddenly very alert, almost tense. "'Pine lights,' he said. "'You saw pine lights. Where were they?' "'So you've heard of the pine lights, have you?' "'I sure have. I've been doing my homework. "'Where did you see them? Were they moving?' They were streaming across the crest of Apple Pie Hill, just skirting the tops of trees. Creighton put his tumbler down and began fumbling with his map. Apple Pie Hill. I remember seeing that somewhere. Here it is. He jabbed his finger down on the map as if he were driving a spike into the hill. Okay, so you were on Apple Pie Hill when you saw the pine lights. How many were there? Oh, towns worth of them. Maybe a hundred. More than I've ever seen before or since. How fast were they going? Different speeds. Different sizes. Some gliding peacefully, some zipping along, moving past the slower ones. Looked like the turnpike on a summer weekend. Creighton leaned forward, his eyes brighter than ever. Tell me about it. Something about Creighton's intensity disturbed me. All of a sudden, he'd become an avid listener. He'd been listening politely to Jasper's retelling of the Jersey Devil's story, but he'd seemed more interested in the applejack than in the tail. He hadn't bothered to check the location of Apple Pie Hill when Jasper had said he'd seen the Jersey Devil there, but he'd been in a rush to find it at the first mention of the pine lights. The pine lights. I'd heard of them, but I'd never seen one. People tended to catch sight of them on summer nights, mostly toward the end of the season. Some said it was ball lightning, or some form of St. Elmo's fire. Some called it swamp gas and some said it was the souls of dead pineys coming back for periodic visits. Why was Creighton so interested? Well, Jasper said, I spotted one or two moving along the crest of the hill and didn't think too much of it. I spotted a couple just about every summer. Then I saw a few more, and then a few more. I got a little excited and decided to get up to the top of Apple Pie and see what was going on. I was breathing hard by the time I got there. I stopped and looked up. And there they was, flowing along the treetops 40 feet above me, pale yellow, some ping-pong-sized and some big as beach balls, all moving in the same direction. "'What direction?' Creighton said. If he leaned forward any farther, he was going to fall off his stool. Which way were they going? "'I'm getting to that, son,' Jasper said. "'Just hold your horses.' So, as I was saying, I was standing there watching them flow against the clear night sky and I was feeling this strange tightness in my chest like I was witnessing something I shouldn't. But I couldn't tear my eyes away. And then they thinned out and was gone. They'd all passed. So I did something crazy. I climbed a tree to see where they was going. Something in my gut told me not to but I was filled with this wonder almost like holy rapture. So I climbed as far as I could. Until the trees started to bend with my weight and the branches got too thin to hold me, and I watched them go. They was strung out in long trail, dipping down when the land dipped down and moving up when the land rose, moving just above the tops of the pines like they was being pulled along streams. He looked at Craven. And they was heading southwest. You're sure of that? Jasper looked insulted. Of course I'm sure of that. Bear Swamp Hill was behind my left shoulder, and everybody knows Bear Swamp is east of Apple Pie. Those lights was on their way southwest. And this was the summer, nigh on to Labor Day, if I remember correct. And you were on the crest of Apple Pie Hill, the tippy-top. Great, began folding his map. I thought you wanted to hear about the Jersey Devil. I do, I do. Then how come you're asking me all these questions about the lights and not asking me about my meeting with the devil? I hid a smile. Jasper was as sharp as ever. Creighton looked confused for a moment. An expression darted across his face. It was only there for a second, but I caught it. Furtiveness. Then he leaned forward and spoke to Jasper in a confidential tone. Don't tell anybody this, but I think they're connected. The pine lights and the Jersey Devil connected. Jasper leaned back. You know, you might have something there, because it was while I was up that tree that I spotted the old devil himself, or at least a shadow. I was watching the lights flow out of sight when I heard this noise in the brush. It had a slithery sound to it. I looked down, and there was this dark shape moving below, and you know what? It was heading in the same direction as the lights. What do you think of that? Creighton's voice oozed sincerity. I think that's damn interesting, Jasper. I thought they both were shoveling it, but I couldn't decide who was carrying the bigger load. But don't you go getting too interested in those pine lights, son. Gus Sui says they're bad medicine. The guy who made this jack, I said, holding up my empty tumbler. The very same. Gus says there's lots of pine light activity in his neighborhood every summer. Told me I was a fool for climbing that tree. Says he wouldn't get near one of those lights for all the tea in China. I noticed that Creighton was tense again. Where's this Gus Sui's neighborhood? He said. Does he live in Chatsworth? Jasper burst out laughing. Gus? Live in Chatsworth? That's a good Gus Sui's an old Hessian who likes his way out in the wildest part of the pines. Never catch him near a city like this. City? I didn't challenge him on that. Where do we find him, then? Creighton said, his expression like a kid who's been told there's a cache of M&M's hidden somewhere nearby. Not easy, Jasper said. Gus done a good job of getting himself well away from everybody. He's well away. Yes, he's well away. But if you go down to Apple Pie Hill and head along the road there that runs along its south flank, and you follow that about two mile and turn south onto the sand road by Applegate's Cranberry Bog, then follow that for about ten, twelve mile till you come to the fork where you bear left, then go right again at the cripple beyond it, then it's a good ten mile down that road till you get to the big red cedar. Creighton was scribbling furiously. I'm not sure I know what a red cedar looks like, I said. You'll know it, Jasper said. It's kind don't grow naturally around here. Gus planted it there a good many years ago so people could find the way to him. The right people, he said, eyeing Creighton. People who want to buy his wares, if you get my meaning. I nodded. I got his meaning. Gus made his living off his still. Anyways, you turn right at the red cedar and go to the end of the road, then you gotta get out and walk about a third of the way up the hill. That's where you'll find Gus Suey. I tried to drive the route across a mental map in my head. I couldn't get there. My map was blank, where he was sending us. But I was amazed at how far I did get. As a piney, even a girl, you've got to develop a good sense of where you are. Got to have a store of maps in your head that you can picture by reflex. Otherwise, you'll spend most of your time being lost. Even with a good library of mental maps, you'll still get lost occasionally. I could still travel my old maps. The skill must be like the proverbial bicycle. Once you've learned, you never forget. I had a sense that Gus Sui's place was somewhere far down in Burlington County, near Atlantic County. But county lines don't mean much in the Pinelands. That's really in the middle of nowhere, I said. That it is, Kathy. That it is. That it surely is. It's on the slope of Razorback Hill. Creighton shuffled through his maps again. Razorback. Razorback. There's no Razorback Hill here. That's because it ain't much of a hill. But it's there all right. Just because it ain't on your diddly map don't mean it ain't there. Lots of things ain't on that map. Creighton rose to his feet. Maybe we can run out there now and buy some of this Applejack from him. What do you say, Matt? We've got time. I had a feeling he truly did want to buy some of Suey's Jack but I was sure some questions about the pine lights would come up during the transaction. Better bring your own jugs if you're going, Jasper said. Gus don't carry no spares. You can buy some from the Busbys at the general store. Will do, I said. I thanked him and promised I'd say hello to my mom for him. Then I joined Creighton out at the Wrangler. He had one of his maps unfolded on the hood and was drawing a line southwest from Apple Pie Hill through the emptiest part of the Barrens. What's that for? I asked. I don't know just yet. We'll see if it comes to mean anything. It would. Sooner than either of us realized. End of part one.
1: There you go. End of part one. Next week, part two. So big thank you to Amy, big thank you to F. Paul Wilson. Like you say, I am now sunning myself. It better be bloody sunny, better not be raining because we're camping. (laughs) Um, away for a week, so if you send us emails, I'll just ignore them. (laughs) I'm just going to put me phones down and everything like that, I'm going to have a week off. Back for a few days, now we're actually away again camping, but fingers crossed I can get next week's show out as well. So, I hope you enjoyed it. Like you say, I was chuffed a bit with the Lucius Shepard interview. I hope you enjoyed that as well. Do stick around and enjoy more to come. Until then, I would just like to say good night from me.
0: Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, A that procedure machine. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in
3: three, two, one.